So where do you rank Jedi in terms of, let's just talk about the original trilogy. Where do you rank it? In my heart, I think, because it was for so long when I was a kid, I almost sometimes feel like I want to put it first, even though if like I kind of know better, like <laughs> Empire is so much better in so many ways. But the thing is that like uh, Jedi is built like a like a dark ride at like Disney World. So it's kind of like immersive in that artificial way. It's kind of hard to fall out of love with that from like when you were a kid. So that's another question I was going to follow up with. But since you brought it up, was this your favorite when you were a kid? Well, I watched uh, Jedi and Empire. I, mean, I think the first time I saw them, I was like maybe one. And so for a while, they were just kind of like one five-hour monolith of a movie in my mind. And then I remember like uh, the way I started differentiating them was that Empire was the laugh it up fuzzball movie because my dad would always repeat that line <laughs> to my sister and I, and we just thought it was super funny. <laughs> and then, um, you know, when my brain was like slightly, just slightly more developed, I remember like when I was like 10 to 12 years old, I was like watching some younger kids down the street. And I remember we were, we were watching like the... Uh, that Rankin Bass Christmas special, like with Year Without Santa Claus, like the one with the Snow Miser Heat Miser song, which is weird because it was like mid April. <laughs> and then we put on Return of the Jedi after that. And I kind of had like a new awakening with that. It was like, this is brilliant. Like these dumb little kids <laughs> before me don't even understand the artistry. And then, then I went home and ate a Lunchable. But then, like, <laughs> but then <laughs> so then, like from that point on for a while, that was like easily my favorite one. And then it kind of, maybe gradually shifted at some point from there. But I still like, I still kind of have to put it above like New Hope, even if it's, if I have to put on power at the very top. That's interesting. Russ, uh, what about you? Uh, where do you rank it now? And where did you rank it when you were a kid? Or is it the same? Uh, top marks uh, across the board. Uh, it was number one as a kid. Uh, also, it was the first Star Wars that I saw. So I think I must have been somewhere between the ages of like three and five. I remember um, I was sick from day camp at the time. And uh, my dad had left me a VHS tape. I had never seen Star Wars. I only knew of it roughly from him talking about it. And uh, yeah, so Return of the Jedi was the first one I saw. Number one back then, uh, number one now, uh, which uh, the modern cinephile would say Empire Strikes Back. Uh, but I know better. It's Return of the Jedi uh, for sure. Uh, I, I could see through all the uh, all, all the art. It's 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 the purest of uh, of Star Wars experience. It's it's. Uh, amplified in all the ways it's like everything they it took two movies to get it right and jedi is just a is perfection for me well that's interesting i want to follow up with both what you said and something that fry said but uh mickey where do you rank jedi return of the jedi now i rank it i rank it third definitely not my favorite as a kid i, I think i think empire was my favorite as a kid um, really i think i yeah the, even young i would say then it was new hope and then no, no. As a kid, I'd say Jedi was second, and then New Hope was last. Rewatching now, like yeah, I, I would say I, I think New Hope um, is more cinema, <laughs> you know, in a in a pure sense. Where like like Fry said that you know, and rewatching this this Return of Jedi now, it's like to me, it's like almost like um, it's separate from those two movies and the original Star, you know, the original Disney World Star Wars ride and world experience and Return of Jedi are actually two. It's more related to that. I, I get a sense that. There, to me, there is artifice of watching this. Like this, watching this around, there's like kind of this artifice of like I can see the 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 moving pieces behind the scenes of this being more commerce than a movie start to kind of show that were to me rear its head more in in, in the next one. Um, but but as a kid, it was more fun than to me than in New Hope. I don't know why I like it. That's kind of like obviously you already did an Empire one. I don't want to get too much into it. But there was just something about like e even young, you know, even like it seems like it's a darker, more complex movie that's still. I thought was cooler, but then, but then the space battles, I, I mean, honestly, 
the 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 Endor commando scenes and this the big space fleet battle to me as a kid were like, yes, this is my second favorite one because this stuff is awesome. Although I would also say it kind of like, you know, talking about like vibes, it did have, I felt like one and two had more like Friday night, let's order a pizza as a family, make some popcorn and make it a cinematic experience where the third one was more of a like, okay, I'm awake at like, you know, 11 a.m. on Saturday and it's bright daylight, but I'm going to watch this one. You know, it's kind of less of a cinematic true. experience, but more of a way to put it. Yeah. That's um, very interesting. It's yeah. interesting because it works lighter too. It's a much lighter movie there. I mean, it's Tatooine Endor, other than I guess the throne room and the space battle you know, compared to like an icy cold world and the asteroid belts, you know, type of thing. It, 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 to me, it's a, it's a much brighter movie. You mean, I, you mean literally brighter? Literally bright. Yeah. 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 But to me, like, I I, again, I think if you're talking vibes, it kind of goes into that vibe of like, this is more of like the Saturday, you know, I'm, I'm maybe even half paying attention. But as a kid, that's, I'm, I'm paying attention to stuff I think is cool. And that's why I enjoy, I enjoy it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd say second as a kid, it wasn't my favorite. Empire was my favorite. But it was, I liked it better. But now, now watching it, third. But it's still good. I still like it. Yeah. First of all, I do think it's interesting that, that even as a kid, you thought that Empire was your favorite. But uh, what I will say to that, you know, there is this like mood and tone that's kind of mysterious about Empire that like, that like really draws you in and makes you lean in a little bit. So I think as a kid, I knew there was something going on that was intriguing to me in Empire. Um, but yes. As a kid, Return of the Jedi was my favorite for all the reasons that you said, Mickey. The spectacle of the battle over Endor and on Endor, I mean, like that whole, the intercutting between those three sequences, like that whole space battle was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen and stood as like the most amazing, impressive space battle in film TV. Like it was still like the gold standard for a long, long time. I do think there's something to what you said, Fry. It is kind of an amusement park ride, and it's kind of constructed that way a little bit. In my mind, Return of the, the Jedi is a lot of, it's like a string of set pieces. Yeah. And I think it is consciously designed to be that way. I think Lucas took a lot of lessons from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was also consciously designed to be like a string of set pieces. Yeah, no, I, I agree with like what you're saying. And like, I think something that really highlights that to me is the kind of back and forth nature of the final battle, especially on Endor when they're like taking things back and forth. And to me, I don't know, something like that, like really screams like amusement park ride or one of those amusement park shows you go see at Disney or whatever, where it's like, now we have the upper hand and now we have it. And it's just that it's a roller coaster almost. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, the real thing is, it's like the speeder bike chase is really emblematic of it. It's like, and now is the speeder bike chase. The movie sort of stops to have an action set piece that is like totally unnecessary. Right. Right. I mean, it's cool. And it's fun, but like from like a plot standpoint, from like a moving the story forward standpoint, it does nothing to develop the characters. It does nothing to move the story forward. Like it is like just there because we want to have an awesome speeder chase in this movie. When you're talking about how there is something about Empire, even when you're a kid that pulls you in, that's kind of like it's in the way, in the sense that it's kind of dark. I think a good example of that for Empire is uh, the scenes on Dagobah, like when R2-D2 is like kind of like caked in mud. Like, I feel like that's like a kind of a piece of like set direction that like wouldn't happen in Jedi because it's more it's a little more clean like that. Like, it's more like we're on rails. Yeah. Like, that's, no, like that's kind true. of like a naturalistic thing. Like, I feel like that's like a naturalistic holdover in a Empire from like the original one. That's you wouldn't see. This actually speaks to something Russ said and Mickey said. Uh, Russ, you said this was like the most Star Wars, Star Wars, like it even out Star Wars is Star Wars, right? 
And Mickey, you said that you were kind of starting to feel the artifice a little bit and like see, you know, get a sense of why certain things were happening from the behind the scenes thing. What I can't unsee from the vantage point we have now is that this is where the prequels start. Like Return of the Jedi is the prequel to The Phantom Menace. Everything that people deride about The Phantom Menace can be found right here in this movie. The Phantom Menace is Return of the Jedi, but more. So in the end sequence, you don't have three set pieces that you're cutting between, you have four. And in The Phantom Menace, you don't have the Ewoks, you have the Gungans, right? And I said this in the last podcast about Empire, but basically for me, where Star Wars, I don't want to say goes wrong because I don't think it's wrong, but the gravity of making Darth Vader Luke Skywalker's father warps the rest of the movies around that, right? So when you have that twist at the end of Empire Strikes Back, you know Return of the Jedi has to be about Luke and Vader. And then one of the things that I think Return of the Jedi is often criticized for is the convenience of tying up the other by making Luke and Leia brother and sister. And you can feel a lot of that sort of continuing on in in the prequels. Like, arguably, the prequels, that's completely what they are, is those kind of conveniences of, like, of tying everything together and, you know, making these people related so it all interconnects and, like, explaining stuff that, you know, makes the whole world of the movie and the saga, quote-unquote, feel a little bit smaller and convenient. I think the prequels start here, is my point. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, yeah. if you think about, like, all the things that they talk about, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on, they, there's, you know, there's a lot of debate, but, like, a lot of people say, like, in the end, this was mainly a Lucas-directed movie. He really started picking up and directing a lot more because of the drama. It's rumors. Like, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's, I don't think it'll ever be proven, but that he did step in. Stepped in, A, right off the bat, more than he did in Empire, I think. I actually heard it was the opposite. Uh, the thing that I was, I was like listening to him, like, talk at this, uh, I forget what it was, but it's from, like, 2010. And he was talking about how he was on set a lot more, like, he actually meant to not be allowed on set a lot on Empire. And it turns out he was there more than he expected to be. And then for Jedi, he ended up being like almost totally not there. Well, having read the Jonathan Rinsler making of Return of the Jedi, making of Empire, he certainly was on the set of Empire more than he thought he would have to be. And I think he was on set. So I watched From Star Wars to Jedi last night. And obviously the, the documentary camera crew captures whatever they capture, but Lucas was giving a lot of direction. And Richard Marquand and George Lucas would be standing there. The actors would go over to George Lucas and ask him what he thought. So, so you know, I very much get the sense that um, obviously we weren't there. We don't know. We only have these first and secondhand accounts from other people. But this this ties into a place where I wanted to start. The choice of director in Richard Marquand. Why Richard Marquand? In preparation for this, I, and I know at least a couple of you have, I watched the movie that Richard Marquand directed right before this that got him the job, 1981's Eye of the Needles, starring Donald Sutherland, which I thought was a really great fucking, really awesome movie. Like, it was yeah. it's from a genre that's really up my alley. You know, it felt kind of like a, a popcorn version of, like, of like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. A little and bit of an erotic thriller. <laughs> yeah, no. I watched the movie. It was really good. I enjoyed it very much. But I don't get the sense from watching it, oh, okay, this is the guy who 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 has to do the next Star Wars. Except that... The moments between the characters, he clearly demonstrates in that in that movie, he can direct actors, he can work with actors, and he can direct action. And I feel like what happened with Richard Marquand 
is sort of what happens now when, you know, somebody like a Gareth Edwards or like a Ryan Coogler or like a Colin Trevorrow, like you have an indie hit, right? And then you immediately get scooped up by some studio to make a franchise movie, like you do a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie, frankly. That's exactly like, what I was thinking, yeah. like Marvel yeah. movies, yeah. <laughs> and what, it was like Lynch was also a possibility too, and it would have been the same thing. Yes. Because 83, what did Lynch even do? He would have been super indie at that right. point. That was before. No, well, he had done him. a razor head and he had done, um, uh, yes. And he had won the Oscar for, for elephant man. I think he won an Oscar. I think that movie won an Oscar. Didn't it? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. As a huge David Lynch fan, I would have loved to have seen the David Lynch return of the Jedi, but I think we kind of know what that is. It's, it's Dune. It's, it's <laughs> Dune. Dune. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story, of how David Lynch recounts the meeting that he had with George Lucas. He says that he met with him and they went out to some restaurant for lunch that only served salad. And he thought that that was very weird. And George Lucas was describing the movie. And David Lynch had this like this awful headache and he couldn't really concentrate on what on what George Lucas was saying. He was like, and then he was talking about these like little teddy bears or whatever. And, <laughs> and my head was just throbbing. And eventually I said, George, like this really seems like you your your baby like you have an idea for what this is you should direct this like you don't need me to do this and i think that was a very canny thing that he understood he got the sense that oh he wants someone that he can tell what to do and i think in marquand he had a director that was um willing to pliable collaborate <laughs> yeah well there was to a whole generous, thing too uh, be, having to do with the dga was part of it oh yeah i mean that's certainly true but there's also other parts of Eye of the Needle that uh, kind of, maybe just because I was watching it in the context of Star Wars and like how it might connect. But I mean, it takes place, most of it takes place on, a, on an island called Storm Island. And like it's storming there and there's like a cliffside. And I was like, this is kind of like a Star Wars planet. Like <laughs> just the setting of it. And also, like you said, yeah, I think more than even the other Star Wars movies, there are kind of like actor moments in Return of the Jedi. And I was thinking that when I was watching that too, because there is, one extended, well, probably a couple, but in Eye of the Needle, but there's like one extended se uh, sequence between old Donnie Sub and like the, the, uh, Kate Nelligan, probably like a five to 10 minute scene of just the two of them talking. And then, and, and Jedi, there's, we get two back to back scenes of Luke talking to Yoda and Luke talking to Obi-Wan. And it's just like the stretch of dialogue. Yeah. So basically, so what I think Lucas saw was he was like, okay, here's a guy he can direct the actors. Great. And then I can do all the stuff that I want to do. I mean, essentially is the vibe that I get. And I do not want to denigrate Richard Marquand's work on this because having now seen Eye of the Needle, which I think is a really solid, very entertaining, very well-made movie. He's obviously, or was, um, he passed away far too young, but he obviously was a very talented, capable director. And um, I was reading... Secrets of the Force, which is a book that came out, I think this year or last year. It's an unauthorized oral history of Star Wars by Mark A. Altman and, and Edward Gross. And they have a lot of, of archival interviews with Richard Marquand that I had never read or heard before, where he basically says, like, he knew what this was and he was down. He respected Star Wars. He was on board with George's vision of it, and he wanted to help him realize it in whatever way he could. Whereas like an Irvin Kirshner and a Gary Kurtz, the producer who did not produce Return of the Jedi, but he did the first two, you know, I think they had different visions of what this should be or what this could be that I don't think George Lucas, I don't want to say he didn't want to take the time to listen, but I feel like by this point, for many, many reasons, he had very specific ideas of what this movie should be and how it should be done. And he wanted it done. 
I think, being the operative word. I think he was over Star Wars at this point, and I think he just he wanted to wrap up the trilogy so he could he could move on and uh, pick up the pieces of of his life. Yeah, you almost get there's like a sense of maybe like Star Wars was a monkey's paw to like George Lucas, where he created one of the greatest things, and then by Return of the Jedi, it's just like this. It's an albatross. It was, and I would argue that it really took him about a decade to kind of re-fall in love with his own creation and be game to spend another decade plus of his life involved with it. I think he came to peace with that, but I think, you know, that kind of crazy success and crazy pressure and crazy whirlwind of, you know, being the eye of the storm of a cultural phenomenon, the likes of which I don't know we'll see another quite like again. I don't know if it's possible to create something of this kind of seismic cultural force. I don't think so. Marvel's kind of doing something similar, but not quite. Yeah, but that's adapted. Yeah. Like that's that's an adapted universe that already existed. So I look at Star Wars as being a wholly original written for a screen. Well, wholly original in that it's, you know, it's a proxy for Dune, but, you know, wholly original in its own way, you know, what he's trying to do. Uh, and Marvel Universe is like people I, I've heard from uh, from adults with children uh, who have seen Star Wars and the children just forget about Star Wars the minute they leave the theater, but they're talking about Marvel. Like Marvel is their Star Wars now. That's just how it shook out. Uh, Star Wars doesn't uh, capture the interest for a lot of, it's not necessarily true of all, all children, but in the same way that I think it did for many of us. You know, Marvel is also say, is. I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. I say Ghostbusters, I think might've been the closest possible, like next thing that was Star Wars-esque that. Could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, also I was going to say Marvel, um, is also just basically like TV, like right, almost right from the beginning. I mean, Star Wars is now too, but the reason that it, Marvel is able to be what it is is because it basically functions <laughs> like TV. Yeah, it became a juggernaut, but yeah. it had to really, they really worked at it where like it was spontaneous with Star Wars. It was a flash in the pan thing that grew organically where, yeah, they're like with the Marvel, like what they've created that felt like they have worked to make it that um, type of thing. Flash in the pan, the whole stove caught fire. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. We have another Death Star. How do we feel about this? I could tell you, as a kid, I thought this was the original Death Star that was like still left over after the explosion. Interesting. Uh, because I was three or four and I didn't know any better. Uh, yeah, like, the, the visual oh, kind of makes it seem like that. It's just like, yeah, oh, there's like, a big chunk oh, out of it. Yeah, it's broken. Yeah, they, they blasted a chunk and it's still going. I, was, I, was, I had no idea. It's like, this was, it's like, all right, that's why it's still there. Otherwise, in a million years, like, why would you build the Death Star again? <laughs> well, I've, no, I, I always kind of liked it because it's like kind of like a, now it's like a real like symbol of terror because like they rebuilt the structure that like the destruction of it represented like their big win. And I was just like, look, now it's almost, your win is almost erased. It's really like demoralizing. Just oh, as that's a symbol. interesting. I really like that. I never thought of it that way, but I really like that read. It's bigger too, right? It's like twice the size of the well, yeah. Death Star. So I mean, so I mean, yes. Like if you read like the the role playing book or whatever, it, it's like twice the size or whatever. Functionally on screen, it's exactly the same. Though it is a very striking image. Well, let me pose this to you. Uh, it's the forest moon of Endor. So uh, in the like, that's no moon. That's a space station. But now. It's a moon of a moon. So it really, it's nothing. Like, if you think about it, like, it's, it's, it's not that big. <laughs> it's it's a moon of double a, moon. Yeah, it's a moon of a moon. Come on. Like, that, that's tiny. That's, that's, that's nothing to fear. You're fine. I, I think there's talk, like, behind the scenes of the issues. Like, they didn't want to do the Death Star for the first movie, right? That was something that, like, Lucas had already envisioned there being a, a whole saga, and it ends at the Death Star. But then he's like, if I only make the first one, I got to kind of throw the Death Star in at the first one. 
Yeah, I mean, that's when he made the first one, I don't think there was any question that it was going to end the way that it ended. I think like at least 50%, like the point of the whole exercise was to have the massive space battle at the end. So, so obviously it was going to end up in that first movie. When you reach the third one, and you reach the end of that original plot, and there's a Death Star-sized hole in the finale. <laughs> there was a lot of talk and story conferences about the end battle happening over the capital city planet of the Empire, which I feel like would make a lot more sense if you want to really feel like this is the decisive blow to the Empire, the Rebels have won. The reason they didn't go with that was a budgetary thing. George Lucas didn't think that they could afford or realistically pull off the effects and the sets that having a city planet would require. So that's actually one of the few things that I know he's talking about when he always says in interviews and stuff like, I had to wait to make the prequels until the technology was there to do it. And I was always kind of like, what are you talking about? I don't really understand exactly what he's thinking when he says that, except this is something that I know he's talking about. He's like, I can't do a city planet planet on that scale realistically whether or not that's true i mean look i wasn't george lucas in 1983 he obviously knew what his company could do and how far the money would go i think it would have been cool to have seen what 1983 technology how it would have rendered an environment like that yeah i mean to take it back to to the death star as like the opening of the movie uh something i always thought even as a kid like this is big like we're coming, we're coming a shuttlecraft out of a big star destroyer. We're going to the Death Star, and it feels possibly like now I can see it looks feels bigger than the uh, the first Death Star. Uh, but big doorways, big bays, uh, big big wide long shots. Like it feels really. Um, there's an, there's like this this uh, fear of like enormous spaces sort of thing, like in space. Uh, it's all kind of there, and it feels very rigid, very controlled, very manufactured. Um, there, there's not that camera motion that you would see in like later Star Wars films. Um, it's just it's very static, locked off shots. So, you know, some moving, but um, very, very like parallel, uh, perpendicular. There's not a lot of twists and turns. It feels very um, sterile in a way, and that's it's. And I think that that starts to like build a sense of uh, like uh, ominous fear that you know, uh, foreboding uh, that the Emperor is kind of. Like, like this is huge. They have a lot of gear here. This is, uh, this is pretty scary. So it's a good way to lead in with always, always open with your villain. Yeah, well, that's interesting too because I think there's a lot to what you're saying, but I think that the staticness of the shots, I think, is also intentional in that you know, Star Wars was a movie that was really made in the editing room, and Empire Strikes Back. The shots are much more dynamic with like the takes are longer and Irvin Kirshner is constantly using the camera. He's settling on new compositions and stuff. And you can't really, you can't really cut around that. And I think it's no secret that George Lucas is, he considered himself to be more of an editor than, I don't want to say a director, but like his favorite part of the process was the editing process. And I think when you're working with a director that is not shooting for the edit, he's not getting all the coverage. He's not giving you the choices to have later in the editing room. I think that was really frustrating from an editor standpoint on Empire. He couldn't make it the way he wanted it because of the way it was shot. So I think that with Marquand, he found someone who would shoot it in a traditional way, not in a bad way, but like he would get the coverage and he would shoot for the edit, which is a valid thing. Yeah, it's kind of funny because like thinking back on like the shot, there's not like a lot of a dynamic things you're talking about, like like camera 
movements and B just no like blocking that really stands out to me thinking I mean maybe the the door opening on Luke is really like when you think of a shot that's a cool that's the one but that's really kind of it may maybe some of the throne room sites but what it really reminds me is like especially when you hit the 90s with comedies the way the way those were shot um up until present day with comedy just kind of very static very still shots what they what comedies they do for the reason of like it allows the actors to to riff and improvise and things like that um, it's kind of, it's yeah. kind of like the same idea. It, it gives, it gives less power to the, the camera operator, to the person in there, but, but more opportunities for fixing later. And I, yeah, I definitely think, especially compared to empire, um, in terms of like, yeah, things like blocking camera movements or just like composition, there's, there's not a lot that stands out to me, um, as much as there was like an empire, even star Wars, um, again, like really just the door of Jabba's palace open on Luke is like the one iconic image I can really think of. In, in a sense, Josh, you did mention that one possible Marquand uh, touch with the uh, the handheld shot. Oh yeah, so so something later on. So so this shot always stuck out to me. I think the first shot when we're on the Rebel cruiser, we're inside the ship and we're following these um, soldier Rebel guys or whatever through a hallway, and it opens up into the briefing room. That shot is a handheld shot, and I think it's the first, maybe only handheld shot in the entire trilogy. And what made me realize that was watching Eye of the Needle, because very similarly, you would have a lot of scenes where uh, the coverage was, you know, very standard, punctuated with these occasional handheld shots. Then uh, once I watched Return of the Jedi again, after having seen Eye of the Needle, I was like, oh, okay, like that's a Marquand shot. Like he decided it's like, okay, and now I'm going to do a handheld and, and just see what I get, which again is a very, is the editor's mindset. It also kind of reminded me of the, uh, like, uh, just a circa, like, 1971 conspiracy thriller for a moment there. It was just, like, yeah, yeah, the way that it right. comes in on there. Yeah, I mean, I disagree that the uh, the shots don't really have a lot of presence, especially the opening. Uh, for me, it always has. Um, they kind of look like um, some, like, you know, 70s uh, sci-fi book cover paintings. These really kind of... Uh, rigid lines and kind of flat panels uh, so it, it definitely works for me and i feel like um in the lack of motion uh even even if it isn't uh uh like a like a choice even if it's more of a technical choice that they need to shoot these things uh, more static whether they're matte shots or not or or they're, they're composited um, i feel like it sets a certain stage uh, because as soon as you go to uh, tatooine uh, and we follow uh, c-3po and r2d2 uh, going to Jabba's palace, um, it cuts to the shot of them walking, and it's a wide. We see a little landscape. We see Jabba's palace in the distance, and it cuts to a shot where it's a wide, and they're standing at the door uh, on you know the right side of frame. It's just a big door, like it just fills the whole frame. And for me, uh, that like Return of the Jedi is about big doors, like that. That's like one of the major <laughs> themes of the film, uh, and, and like <laughs> big big doors, and uh, it really sets the scale. Where you're like, all right. So whoever's behind this big door is pretty important because that's a really big door um, and, and like a big slow moving door. That's the other factor. Like things move slowly because they're big. It's, you know, it's a matter of uh, scale, but uh, it really feels it fills the frame and it really does feel like like more of a theatrical set piece. It feels like a stage play because I always used to think uh, the Phantom Menace felt like like, why are they performing this like it's a play? Like, why are they these like little dioramas that they're in? And then I, now I'm looking at Return of the Jedi and I'm seeing like, oh, no, this is this is kind of what it's always been. Like, let's show the space. Let's show the, the texture of the cracked wall. Um, and, and that's really what we're getting here. So I think there there is a character to um, these wide uh, kind of shots. They're, they really are kind of like moving paintings for me. And maybe that's great. 
it's a little, little there's some like Barry Lyndon-ness to it, you know, for me, uh, which, which I love. I don't disagree with you. Like it's a, I mean, it's a taste thing. It's a style thing. Like I'm not saying that, you know, one is right and the other is wrong. I do think a lot of the imagery in this movie certainly is very striking. The incompleted Death Star in this movie is very striking. It's a very striking image in a way that the first one was not. I certainly think that this is um, much more imposing. And there is something to what you're saying about scale. And again, I watched From Star Wars to Jedi last night and Mark Hamill as the narrator, but also the interview with George Lucas in that movie, they were both saying like Return of the Jedi is doing what he wanted to do with Star Wars. And a lot of that was scale. Right. It's the most Star Wars you can get. As far as the scale that you're talking about, like, I think that is one big part of Return of the Jedi is just like uh, there's in, in terms of the set design is like there's a huge focus on like architecture, even uh, Ewok Village, Jabba's Palace, uh, the new Death Star. Like it's all I think that is where the all visual panache comes in. The money went into production design for sure. Yeah, no, I was saying the camera, like, yeah, I'm maybe a little down on the camera work, but I, I think the production design is the best of the whole trilogy, although that might re relate to like, again, it's like. The, the wheels are coming off and this is commerce and this is just selling toys um, <laughs> aspect of it again. Is it, that's where, you know, we're kind of reaching that. It's like, like the B wings and the A wings are cool. Like those are that, such a great addition of a new thing. But is that just because, oh, I, oh, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just being a little like too, you know. I mean, I don't you think know. you're wrong. Um, uh, there's also something to, well, if we're just doing the Death Star again, we have to make it a little different. <laughs> we have to add some new, some new fighters, some new designs, and we have to make it I mean, that one shot, the first shot where uh, we see all the TIE fighters and then the next shot after it, the one where the Falcon flies through those zillions of TIE fighters, like that shot, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, it was in 1983 and it, it still is. And it's not just the more ships, it's the costumes are, are cooler, like the, the, the commando, Endor commando costumes and, and then all the aliens in Java's palace. It's, it's, yeah, it's really cool. I love like their dusters with like the, it looks like they're like spray painted. It's a very like kind of 80s like cyberpunk style almost fry were you going to ask if they ever made a java's palace playset yes <laughs> <laughs> uh they had a they had a, a java on a rolling uh like platform like his like his little lounge area and i think they had like a cardboard diorama like i could be wrong i know they made that later for like the power of the force figures uh they had like a cardboard diorama like throne room setup but uh and they did remake the the java on the uh on the, the the rolling uh platform i have like an r2d2 nice. thing that like came apart into jabba's palace type of thing it was like it was like an r2d2 maybe like a foot big and then you would open him up and the inside was jabba's palace with like little oh, you, oh you're talking about the micro machines yeah the yeah made by galoob yeah yeah Oh, so I have a good follow-up uh, to lead into like Jabba's Palace since we're kind of hanging out there. When that little eyeball pops out of the door, like I always like that. It, it was it uh, a little little glowy orb pops out, flips up. Like a lot of those small details, I think was what interested me as a kid, um, and, and it always kind of like stays in my mind. But like a slow-moving door, and then they they walk in. It's shadowy. There's a Gamorrean guard there, and it, and the guard's drooling when they when they see him, like 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 drool like coming out of his mouth. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, pig guy. And, and like, it was, as, a kid, as a kid, you're like, all right. So they got these, they're, they're rolling in there. It's a pig guy. There's this like a uh, spider crawly, like uh, brain in jar guy, uh, the Beomar monk moving by. Um, and, and it's super dark. And I think a lot of the character for me of good Star Wars is like shadow, darkness, beams of light, which are 
uh, especially in this film, a lot more like of, of those like blue blue beams of light, but also the fog and mist and whatever whatever space opium spice they're smoking in Jabba's palace is like all floating around and like giving like so much texture. But like sometimes you just can't see. It's like a shadow. You don't really know what's what's going on in that part of Jabba's palace, and it really makes it feel both lived in, which is one of the great parts of Star Wars, and it feels like you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know who's like uh, sleeping, you know, uh, drunk over in, in the corner at Jabba's palace. Uh, and, and that's like, for me, uh, one of the best parts of, I mean, one of the best parts about this whole movie in general is the Jabba sequence. Like for me, one of the best, uh, however many minutes of a Star Wars film is everything related to Jabba's palace. Well, what you're describing is like the same reason why the only special edition change that I hate and I can, I'm fine with almost everything else, but the, uh, the song to the change to like Jedi rocks and like the oh, effects in that it. scene because like in the original yeah, like Latinx is awesome yeah Latinx is great no, no, did you no, I was looking no, at the no, lyrics no. I can read those later if you want <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh but yeah like the original version it had that feeling of like being a little kid and like an adult space and like you're kind of don't know what's going on but you know it's bad and like now it's like a like a soft like Muppets version where like, with like weight like weightless CGI and like wholesome boomer humor like you know like somebody's aunt's gonna laugh at it it's the only part where like where i know star wars as a whole is family friendly but like it's like this like it's actively not made for me right now it, it's terrifying and also like you walk in and and the music that's playing it's like java's baroque recital i think it is on the uh on the track and like i'm, I'm a big harpsichord fan so whenever you you like modify that and put it in space like the music in java's palace rocks like it is good good music like star wars or not i can listen to that anytime except for jedi blocks which does not yeah. rock yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. And like I uh I only watched like the original or theatrical version. Like I don't really I don't watch any of the special editions ever. Like I've only watched them I think once or twice when they first came out. And I don't I don't watch them anymore. So I'm going like my memory is strictly the original theatrical version. Java's Palace is super seedy and there's so many people in the corner and there's other like as I watched it this time, I noticed there's a few other women that you don't really know um who are in the corner. One has like uh like split color hair. And it's just like, there's a lot of characters. Like it is a good, um, like maximizing, like the experience of the cantina scene. It was new, it was exciting in, in, you know, 1977 and like, all right, how do we do it again? It's like, well, you make it seedier, you know, and then, and you have dancers and, and you have frogs in a jar and you got this little, like a little, little goblin, you know, like laughing at everybody. You got a little gesture. (laughs) Like it's, it's just maximized. It's great. It's like the is that they took what they did in the cantina and, and pumped it up and, and made it a little, maybe a little scarier. And, and like Jabba yeah. is an imposing creature. That's, that's just a marvel of effects work and puppetry. Yeah, I just want to agree with Russ and kind of bring it to something I think Fry said at the beginning when we we're asking like, is this our, you know, what's your favorite movie? Where do you rank it? And there's almost a sense of like, do I rank them, these movies or are there just sequences? And I like some sequences in one movie over another. And I definitely think Jabba Palace is up there. And I think a lot of it is these details that Russ is talking about that really stick out. Yeah, I, th- I think if like, me thinking back and like one you, you say Star Wars and one of the first memories that's going to come to me for some weird reason I don't know except it's such a great detail is um the Rancor trainer crying when the Rancor dies. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why do that? <laughs> but it's amazing. And everyone's sleeping. Another thing is everyone's just sleeping. You know, they they just sleep. They just yes. pass out and sleep. There. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's something I wanted to ask about. Like, like so so Jabba. I mean, this is his throne room, right? So he sleeps there too, and all of these like like the hoi polloi riffraff like hangers <laughs> yeah. on that he just like lets you know you know it's a sex like, thing like it's all like <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, oh yeah it, it's it's heavily implied that that it, it's an all-night orgy at Jabba's palace like, 
it is heavily implied. Well, <laughs> you're hitting upon something here. We got to talk about the the metal bikini. Well, right? well, even before that, Ula is wearing uh, Ula the dancer, oh, sure. who, who, is the, who who is the first uh, victim of um, the, the, the rancor. Yeah, uh, she's she's wearing um, like a fishnet uh, top, and I think even as a child, is like booby. Is that a booby? <laughs> like, uh, you know, excuse so me, like, booby. Yeah, so that might have been like the first uh, like like booby in a movie I even even saw, and you know, like at a young age. Uh, so there was like a level of like eroticism in this Star Wars film uh, that just. Uh, the likes have not been seen I mean, at this level in Star Wars. Sure. I would say it's a little bit juvenile, though. Like, I was a I child. Mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean uh, fair enough. I mean, fair enough. Like, target target okay. audience totally worked. Showed I all mean, my like, cards here. Looking at the Sarlacc, that's like giant vagina, vagina dentata is kind of like like a little on the nose, isn't it? Whoa, I, I, I mean, wasn't like, even thinking that. Yeah, that's that's sick, well, man. Dude, that's dark. It's a, gi- <laughs> it's a giant <laughs> hole. It's a giant like fleshy <laughs> hole in the middle of the desert with it's covered in teeth. I, I, I was talking about a professional dancer. And, and that's why the trainer is crying. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just Jabba's a juvenile one. Maybe it's all just a reflection of the character that Jabba is. That he's just <laughs> J- Jabba's a man child. Yeah. I think Mickey's hundred percent. Yeah, he's yeah. a gangster. Uh, he, you know, he comes from a long line of gangster huts, and he, and he's young Jabba. He's you know he's he's you know, we don't know how old he is. He's a young guy. He's just looking to have fun. He's hanging out with all of his friends. Boba Fett's in the back. Um, when there, there's the point when um, I want to, I can't remember if it's when Ula goes down the pit or if it's uh, when Luke later falls. Boba Fett is laughing with Jabba, and you hear Boba Fett's laugh uh, on the theatrical cut. It's at um, yeah, Boba Fett laughs at twenty five thirty five. <laughs> I wrote down the time code from theatrical cut. <laughs> really? And you hear his I'll voice. Yeah, go, I'll have to go back to to that uh, and, and because in that like, case, oh, yeah. Like that's well, like that's weird. That you like you know how they replaced uh his, his original voice with uh Tim Morrison's voice, like which I don't like, but also I think I mentioned to you guys before that um the one good thing about it with the new Boba Fett is that like kind of makes it more believable because just his voice is kind of has like an inherent kindness to it that you can believe that maybe that was there along. Except that the one thing that still ruins that, even in the any, any new cut of that, is that he when he's in Jabba's palace, he like kind of touches like one of the dancers like face like suggestively, like when it's just like, Oh, what a scumbag. Like he's still, like yeah. I don't believe that that guy is the guy that like comes out of the Sarlacc pit. Like uh, maybe he's trying to save her. Maybe <laughs> he's like, I don't want to dance, baby. I just want to talk. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. So I want to, I want to ask a question. I think we've all been talking about how much we love this whole sequence of the movie, this whole Java sequence, which you know clearly the climax of which is you know Luke showing he's a Jedi and he's got some skills. He takes out everybody. But isn't there another version of this that accomplishes the same thing where it's like the cold open and we see Han frozen in Jabba's palace. And then there's like some kind of like a Batman, like sort of like a takedown and the jailbreak happens in the first five minutes. And then like Han is freed and we move on with the movie because in a certain way, we spent a lot of time here. Well, I, th- I think they're modeling it after Hoth, which like I think there it's the same amount of it's like thirty seven minute sequence in both of those movies where like it's just like okay we can have their nearly forty minute kind of like it is like a cold open except it just goes on for the entire first act. <laughs> no, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. The idea that the rescue of Han, which was something that was. I mean, we all knew that that was going to happen, or maybe we didn't. I don't know. But reestablishing the status quo so we can move on with the rest of the story, like, that's a pretty significant detour. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, every time I watch it, I always forget how long it takes for that to happen. I'm like, I always like think it's like the second scene. Right. But it's actually so. So it's a really long. It's a long sequence. And I'm not saying that it it doesn't work. Like I think I think it's great. And obviously for kids, you know, it's very effective. It's very cool. You love spending time in the world. Like you love seeing all this. And that I mean that is the reason for it. I mean I don't think you need to justify it anymore. I'm just kind of trying to tease out, you know, thinking about it in story terms, like when you're you're developing something, you're choosing, it's like, okay, well, what is this about? And obviously, I guess it does tie into the larger story, uh, which is really Luke's story, I think, to the detriment of all the other characters. Leia and Han in particular, I think, are just kind of appendages in this movie. I just, that, that reminds me of the one thing, like the, the thing that really struck me rewatching it for the first time in a while this time is like, to me, like how effortlessly... Like you're saying, it's Luke's movie, but to me, like uh, Harrison Ford stole it to me as an actor. He is fantastic in this movie. His face does so much, like in this movie. Like, yeah, he, like, reaction. he like, sells. He, yeah. yeah, he sells, he sells so the, much like the millennium. Like when that, like the most, probably the most emotional part of all three movies is him having to let go of the Millennium Falcon to Lando the last time. Just through like well, the way he acts yep, that yep. scene, and you just like, oh my god, this guy loves this ship more than. Anything. But also uh, the scene, the scene where he's rescued. Um, yeah, I've yes. never heard by, like by, that kind by, of emotion from like it's just like you, yes. he, he sounds vulnerable. Like, and that might be down to a Mark Pond thing too, because it's like I don't really think of raw performances when it comes to Star Wars, but like when he's like you can feel how like vulnerable and like relieved and like scared he is, and it's just kind of like wow, that's like I don't think I've ever heard heard that from like Harrison Ford ever before or since. <laughs> yeah, well, Chewie, is, is that you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That whole moment. No, yeah, he's fantastic. And that scene, Fry, is, like I wrote in my notes, Harrison Ford is so good, like, exactly at that moment that you're describing. But here's my thing about Han in this movie. I mean, first of all, I don't know what he's doing leading the strike team on the ground. Like, that doesn't really make sense to me. He should be flying in space, I think. I feel like that's a more natural place for him to be. They, they, they feel like they kind of had to explain that when, like, with the exchange of uh, with uh, Lando, where it's just yeah, kind of like, why? Right. <laughs> And the other thing, I don't know, watching it this time, it's like I kind of feel like Han should feel like he's missed a lot. He should feel out of place and That's be true. trying to be trying to catch up. So the last time he saw Luke was right before the Battle of Hoth. He had just saved his life, right? And he was still a kid in his eyes. And now all of a sudden he's he's a Jedi Knight. Years have gone by. I, I just feel like it's a missed opportunity to have Han have some have a character arc like in the movie and Leia she should either be leading the strike force herself or she should be where Mon Mothma is or she should be with Admiral Akbar running the battle like what we have in the movie that we got was she's just kind of running around with Han on the planet and she gets into jeopardy and doesn't really have anything to do. You know, it also doesn't help that the thing that Leia is most remembered for in this movie is the metal bikini thing, which is... Right. She also kills Jabba and, the Hutt, though, so I don't know. That's, like, a pretty big yeah, move. Yeah. No, she does, yeah, but that's sort of, like, a plot thing, and, like, we don't really <laughs> see her enjoying it. Like, she gets revenge, like, on paper. It's just, like, breaking breaking even. <laughs> well, you know, you know yeah. the whole Hutt, the Hutt saga really exists more so in the expanded universe... Uh, whatever they call it now, legacy, uh, like because Legends. Leia killed Jabba. Uh, oh yeah, whatever. Uh, because uh, Leia killed Jabba the Hutt. Like there is a huge bounty on her, on Han, like everyone related, and like that just follows them through all the rest of the expanded universe or or uh, legends, whatever. They want. Yeah, and and and, it, and it's a cool point. Like that, that's a bigger story that follows through. So, like I get where like I look at Jedi as like 
this the, the serial nature of Star Wars, where like you're not get, everything's not perfect. They set up a lot of things. They don't really make perfect arcs, but they do leave it open, and there there's more space um, to explore after this film is over. I don't think there's enough time to do all that. Um, not saying that they that they couldn't attempt it, but but it know, is weird I, that Leia does become almost like mostly damselish again, uh, considering that the uh, sister reveal. It's just like, oh, she is a heroic character potentially, but like. Or the biggest thing she does is shoot uh, over Han's shoulder. <laughs> no, so but that's something else. When she learns that that Darth Vader is her father, she gives no reaction at <laughs> all. Yeah, because she's not even an orphan, as far as she knows, right? Does she actually think? Does she think her? I can't remember. I'm not sure. I think they kind of gloss over that. So, but it is interesting. Like she finds out in the same moment, Luke is her brother, and Darth Vader, who tortured her, who destroyed her family and her planet and everything she knows she finds out that's her father and and that she's force sensitive at the same time like she's like just I, in shock I, for the I rest feel of the movie. It, yeah <laughs> yeah i think she's totally in shock they had some ewok wine and they're a little bit they're a little bit uh a little fuzzier on the edges and they don't really yeah I, it, it's it's way too much information to comprehend i don't know what that would even look like her head just explodes like a scanner's moment like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that this movie and the other movies are like, they're not really interested in what's going on inside Leia and not even really interested in what's going on inside Han. Like these are. That's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I totally it's, agree. They're just uh, they're the there Skywalker for like... saga. In fact, well, it's interesting. Cause <laughs> it's, well, not, not to like skip over too much of the end, but like this almost becomes like, like Vader. Like, you know, if you think it's like, oh, we have these three main characters, Luke, uh, Han and Leia. But this movie again, it focuses on Luke. But then, like it be, number two character, then really becomes Darth Vader slash Anakin. It's his redemption, and that becomes a major story point. And I think that more than maybe even Luke, except it is a Luke story because he's the one trying to redeem him. But but this, but Vader becomes more of like a main character, yeah. you know, in, in that sense. At, yeah, again, at the expense of of Han and and Leia's development. But that's the thing. It's it's, it's a movie about Jedi's, and the Jedi's are important, and the Skywalker's a Jedi. You know, is it? Yeah, kind of. At the expense of like to me, like I'm more of like into the the, the smugglers and and the regentilies and all that stuff. It's cool to me, but I still enjoy the movie. That brings up like a really good point. You can enjoy Star Wars uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you can enjoy uh, like M Mickey likes a lot of the peripheral characters, which are they're like Wedge is like one of the greatest characters who really gets. Lando kind of takes his his a little bit glory uh, leading the strike when it should have been Wedge, in my opinion. But but yeah, there's all these side characters that are great. Or you could focus on on the Luke Skywalker thing, uh, and and his issues. Uh, or you could be really into the fact that there there are B wings and they look awesome. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of different <laughs> things in this movie, like um, that I think you could focus on. But one thing talking about the Jedi, like the Jedi Knight, like this being my first movie, and not having seen any other Star Wars, I'm like Jedi Knight. So like I started off like Luke is on walking a plank. There's no coming back. There's no no one coming to save them as far as I know. I've never seen this movie before. And Luke gives a sig the most confident signal I've ever seen. I think he gets a nod from Lando. Uh, there's a, a a cylinder ejected from uh, R2-D2's dome. It lands in his hand. He turns it on. It's a laser sword, and he and he just like just pure chaos energy and just just sparks are flying. And it's like the most exciting thing I think I've ever seen in my life up to that point. Like I think the only other action movie that I was really into as a kid at that point was masters of the universe, whatever. Yes. That's just, that's what it was. It just, the timing worked no. out. Um, but Nothing wrong so, with that. <laughs> yeah. So it was masters of the universe and it was return of the Jedi. And that scene, like not having seen any star Wars, not knowing anything like uh, Luke's a Jedi Knight. He's wearing all black. 
uh, when he's in the hologram talking to uh, talking to Jabba, uh, playing from R2D2, uh, his collar definitely resembles like a priest collar. There, there's just like this re- kind of this religious element to it where he's like, ah, it's very, very, very like honorable, very, very well spoken, um, very different from the Luke that we had seen previously. So it's like, yeah, Han is right when he's like, a lot's happened since he's blew the Jedi Knight. Like, it's it's a wild concept. And, and not having seen the other Star Wars films, I'm like, this is, yeah, he is like a Batman character. He, like, he's coming in, he's wearing, wearing dark clothes, he's uh, fighting, he's winning, he's taking command of the situation, he's telling people what to do. This is his plan. It's pretty wild. I don't know what I what I started talking about here, but that's... What is, yeah. what is the plan, by the way? Uh, save Han. <laughs> by whatever means no and then uh, that, I, definitely do a cool move for r2 he checks uh, the sword out of his out of his face <laughs> i i will i will say this so in empire uh luke sees the future potentially or sees one possible outcome of the future luke must have seen or had some premonition of the future or had planned it captured he must have known that jabba routinely um dumps people in the sarlacc pit like to have his lightsaber hidden in r2 to have this all plan like that i don't know i'm not going to try to figure it out writing wise but it's exciting uh and maybe he foresaw it maybe he didn't yeah i mean ultimately at the end of the day i mean the reason it happens the way it happens is because it's 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 the most exciting version is my point show me show me a modern equivalent of that like i haven't seen a movie that's excited me like that in ages like you know that moment action Hmm. movie that's excited me like that no i i don't think i have has anyone uh i mean not recently recently but definitely post return of the jedi i'd say yeah, like like die hard maybe yeah no, um, i got nothing and, and the i got Jurassic nothing mark died with a vengeance Robo- but, but, not, but like i have not seen the other Robo-Cop films two? and yet i saw this as the most <laughs> iconic moment ever <laughs> Robocop like, 2 directed by Irving kershner yeah, oh yeah it, it was just it was super it was super like exciting for me and and it felt like something big was happening and i just haven't had that energy from a film uh since really might I might I posit that you might be leaning on some of your childhood nostalgia for your feelings about the movie there? You Is may that posit possible? that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's there's no doubt that my memory of, of the feeling of excitement like is locked in and and you know loaded like whenever i'm watching this i'm like yeah i'm no, a kid i mean again. that's fair that's I what mean, that's, that's what these movies like, are their best that's that's what they're supposed to do yes i agree with you i think that these movies are most effective this one in particular i think is most effective when you are that that age and i don't think that there's anything wrong with that the only thing that i just want to that i am trying to tease out here is like yeah, is like tell. what that maybe it's not as good as i remember it's not as good a film as empire strikes back i mean that's fine (laughs) Uh, i'm still my favorite no that's that is totally valid like i'm not i'm not saying one is is better than the other i think that that this movie has different concerns and different goals than the empire strikes back does yes and that one is more effective for a certain demographic than the other it's not the blue movie it's the brown movie right <laughs> well i think and i started saying this and maybe in my my opening statement but i think this is the best star wars film even if empire strikes back might be a better film film that is that is completely totally fair and valid yeah like, yeah that's what that's like, what i, I didn't not say even it like that but yeah but yeah that's yeah uh, i think this is the like i think part of star wars is excitement 
adventure, <laughs> all, all the things Luke's not supposed to be seeking, but it, it's, it's that type Dude. of energy that makes it uh, exciting. So wh whether it's like perfectly written or if Luke's uh, kick connects to that guy's head on the skiff, like that is kind of irrelevant to me. Like, like it's really, it's really about fun. Well, the only thing that I will say though, is that you could say the same thing about the new movies. You could, I won't. <laughs> right. But that's my point though. Like the only reason I think why somebody might say that about like you're what you just said, like you, you are giving Jedi a pass on a lot of things because at the end of the day, it makes you feel good and, and you love it. Right. But like, if you're going to grade Jedi on a curve like that, then, you know, uh, I wouldn't like, even grade the new ones. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's, that's kind of irrelevant. I feel like yeah. it's actually as much as like Return of the Jedi. I actually really love like uh, Last Jedi. I like and, The uh, Last Jedi more than this movie. And it, it kind of di directly rebuffs this movie the most in particular. I mean, that's something I don't know if we're going to be able to get to in this podcast. Right. But yeah, uh, <laughs> save it for for that movie. <laughs> to go back, I guess, to the Jabba's Palace and everything, I I, I think, I, I agree with Russ. I, I think it's great action. I think it's great action. Again, I'm not going to say there's nothing that since then, but I would say maybe from now going back 10, 15 years, there hasn't been anything. Like, action just lacks that kind of excitement, I think. Um, yeah. And even that's me watching it now, like recently watching it. Me like, yeah. no, I, there's nothing feels... A, a it's, it's there's so much physicality to it. There's not computer generated stuff to it, and that works. And yeah. even if it means is there's not as many as as high of a body count as there is in a modern movie, those bodies that you know they do get to kill and knock in are still feel realer and better and funner overall. And then I guess the other thing I want, if we want to bring it back to Leia's bikini, if this is a trash factor, if you want to have bad opinions, although I don't know what like what Star Wars like fan in them is like anymore. So maybe this is a a, a common opinion. It's fucking awful. It's it is. awful. So maybe I'm with them, but I actually think it's I think the 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 sexual politics of the first three movies and especially Turner are, are fine. I actually think in a certain sense, the male gaze and I think there should be a female gaze too in movies are good. I like the James Bond movies and I'm happy when there's a new James Bond movie in part because of, you know, the, the female, the, the male gaze aspect of it is I think it's an inherent part of cinema that I don't think as human beings, sex is part of who we are and we shouldn't be afraid of. And, and honestly, from what people say behind the scenes is that, that it was Carrie Fisher saying like, I've had two movies of being like, just like completely desexualized because I, I honestly think Lucas was like, I, I think this, like for the time, especially he was actually trying to do like a strong female character um, in, in, a, in a, a genre that wasn't like known for it. And to a point that she even had to push back a little bit and to be like, let me be a woman a little bit, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, what they say is like, that was a little bit of a push on her, on her behalf. I think maybe she regretted then how comfortable it was, but. Um, well, well, but yeah. she also felt like she had nothing to do in this movie. Yeah, which is true in, in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah, so I would agree with you. Like, I don't think the sexual politics of these movies, such as it is, the male gaze is obviously baked into the cake, not only in these movies, but in, you know, the vast majority of of mainstream movies in particular in this genre. But um, the only thing that I would say hasn't aged really well, believe it or not, is in the Empire Strikes Back, and I talk about this on the Empire Pod, the oh. um the way Han kind of not forces himself, but I mean kind of forces Leia to kiss him is not great. She says no several times. She says like yeah. she makes it very clear like I don't want to do this, and she's completely at Han's mercy. Like there's nowhere she can go. It's the implication of being alone on the Millennium Falcon in a, in an asteroid belt. The the implication. 
it's okay because he has not Har- Harrison Ford smirk. It's <laughs> just like, oh, you. Right. At least it wasn't half as bad as uh, Bill Murray with uh, Sigourney Reaver and Ghostbusters. It didn't reach that level of, of being pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world. I'm just saying that's the one thing that I think has aged a little, a little strangely. I think that's also supposed to be like almost a throwback in itself to like 40s. Like, right. It, it's like Errol yes. Flynn type of like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. But that's something that Star Wars does a lot that they pay homage to something, but they're also importing all of the, the cultural attitudes that produced it. And they're perpetuating it. So like a good example is the accusation of racism in The Phantom Menace. The Nemoidians in episode one and how they sound like Chinese villains or whatever from like a Charlie Chan movie or something. And George Lucas can honestly say, I'm not being racist. I'm paying homage to whatever. But in so doing, without examining what those movies were doing, you're perpetuating the racism that was there then. It's just removed yeah. from its context. I'm not being racist. I'm just doing an homage to something I like. <laughs> like but it's like, right. what about the thing you like? Well, I'd also say, though, that's that's not out of character for Han Solo in, in this in this world. So, I mean, it makes like it fits for the character, whether whether it's a good uh, moral interpretation of, of a relationship. That's not for that's not for me to question. That's that's the character. Yes, except I think it's clear what the movie thinks. Yeah, yeah, I I guess it's back to, I get what they're doing, so, I don't know. I get what they're doing also, it's just that you're saying things and communicating ideas and reinforcing certain power dynamics, whether you're conscious of it or not. It's like, you know, you can be saying something without realizing that you're saying it. But my question is, if they say, like, Han Solo is based a little bit on Francis Ford Coppola, maybe uh, (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola maybe has a little bit uh, to familiar with some people in the past or something maybe yeah i wonder well i don't want to speak ill of francis Ford coppola but i mean there are certainly stories yeah so this got pretty uncomfortable i want to talk about dagobah and yoda yoda and obi-wan they both say to luke to complete your training you have to kill your father right and i'm wondering like is that what like the padawan Jedi trials are is like is everyone's like rite of passage graduation to be a Jedi like you have to commit patricide like you have to kill (laughs) is that always what it takes to graduate to being a Jedi it's actually easiest for for Luke it's usually harder for them to do it like in Luke's (laughs) case it's just like no this guy's easy to kill I could like you you're not gonna regret this at all yeah my dad's a poor old moisture farmer why why do I gotta kill him (laughs) he's not even a he's not even a war criminal come on (laughs) I do think it's interesting though because I never thought about it before until you raised this it kind of like is a little bit of again like this little bit of like the prequel story coming out where like oh the Jedi's are kind of a uh pretty strict sect religious group that uh, takes things pretty seriously and maybe too far you know yeah it's really manipulative and fucked up yeah like they are like no you're not a jedi not until you kill your dad yeah <laughs> and i mean look i get it like luke is a part of their whole plan he's their only hope i mean this was the but, plan but they are doing what the emperor is doing to anakin <laughs> like yeah just, no yeah. they are they are manipulating luke and luke he ends up saving the day by ignoring what they tell him. Uh, what Obi-Wan literally says to him, he says to bury your feelings deep down. Right. Like that sounds exactly wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even like you mentioned, like the uh, like whole personality change that he goes through. I mean, that's also a Darth Vader-ish uh, transition where it's just like, now I'm serious, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. The other thing that Obi-Wan says when Luke says, I can't kill my own father. Obi-Wan comes back with, then the Emperor has already won. 
<laughs> like, like, like what? <laughs> like, what are you like? That's really fucked up and manipulative. <laughs> well, thanks for nothing. No, jerk. but so, so it is interesting though, uh, because what these scenes are doing are basically they're correcting the continuity error that has now cropped up that results from making Vader Luke's father, right? Because in the first movie, I think it's, it's pretty clear that that was not the intention. So we need that moment of Obi-Wan to explain, I was lying, but it was just a little white lie. Here's why uh, what I said was true from a certain point of view. But seriously, you really gotta, you really gotta kill your dad. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing that I noted on, on this watch, knowing where Luke ends up, not only in The Last Jedi, but also now having seen what he's up to five years after Return of the Jedi in the Book of Boba Fett, what Yoda says to Luke, he says to pass on what you have learned not rebuild the Jedi according to the Jedi rulebook. What Luke learned was don't listen to what the Jedi tell you to do. I mean, basically. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a the big part of, that, of the end is him trying to not, not kill his dad, to save his life, right. to say, yeah. no, I, I won't. He rebels against the Jedi and, and the Emperor. You know, he forges his own third way. You know, he's, he's the Bill Clinton of the, of the galaxy. <laughs> oh, God, that's depressing. <laughs> um, I also thought it was kind of weird. The way Obi-Wan reveals uh, that information, the other he spoke of was your twin sister. And and Luke's like, Leia, it's Leia. And Obi-Wan's like, how'd you know? <laughs> that revelation is kind of stepped on a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. And they kind of like, they, they, even the musical, he kind of comes in late. Like, uh, it comes in like a few seconds after. Where, like, oh, really? Because like, that's like the, the drop of like that information. And then it's just kind of like, aren't you going to, I feel like you should be playing music right now. And then it's just like a few <laughs> seconds later. <laughs> but I was gonna going back to the uh, what you were saying before about the third way thing. Like the uh, you could kind of just say that like Yoda the, the whole time is right because he's just kind of like no. My point is to keep it loose. Yes, yes. And uh, he kind of comes back and says that in Last Jedi. Exactly right. I think it's interesting because it does dovetail with kind of the fan expectation of like oh so after this movie Luke he goes on and rebuilds the Jedi right like that's actually not what he's supposed to do. We learn who the Jedi were in the prequels and they weren't all that great. And they're actually kind of fucked up a little bit. So it is really interesting, like that whole, you know, reckoning with what the Jedi actually are. And in that sense, say what you will about uh, the sequels, but that component of it to me is the only way to reconcile what we see of the Jedi in the prequels and what we hear of the Jedi and see of the Jedi in the original trilogy is that like, you know, Luke in The Last Jedi is is very much the voice of the Star Wars fan who saw the original trilogy and then saw the prequels and was a little bummed out that the Jedi sucked so much. Yeah. Like he had the same experience that star Wars fans had and he's mad about it. He's like, he's like, did you know that the Jedi actually sucked and that the emperor was right in front of them the whole time. And like, they fucked up and they made Darth Vader. Like what the fuck? Like that's fucked up. And he's like depressed about it. Right. Anyway, that's a, what? I maybe a different, a different podcast. I guess it's a good, yeah, maybe because I have a lot to say about that in terms of why I think I really don't, one of the main reasons I don't like the prequels and sort of don't like the sequels is it's just too much Jedi for me. And to me, like the Jedi started in the first movie as a, it's just a, you know, a pastiche of like a samurai, um, various worlds, religions and ideas and Buddhism and balance hodgepodge nothingness because he just wants to make a modern day mythology, but as pastiche. That then culture, again, because we talked about Star Wars blew up and got a hold of so many people that people needed to be real for some reason. 
Like they need yeah. the, they actually need the religion to work for some reason. And then F Lucas uh, decided to feed into it with the prequels and they decided to focus on that with the sequels. And just like, it's like, no man, all it is, is just mumble jumbo. Let it be mumble jumbo. So people get the wield cool swords and it gets to be like sort of its own sci-fi version of, um, of religious, you know, of, of the, you know, the, the hero's quest that doesn't really, it doesn't really matter the the actual mechanics of the mythology like it's that like, like getting bogged down into it was the mistake i think of the of the prequels i agree with you to a point i do think that like that like if you're going to make more you like have to make certain decisions and make certain choices about what things are and what things aren't that said uh, the prequels certainly were not the only way to go and i mean again like the part of the problem is in those intervening 16 years the entire world was sort of writing their own version of what it should be and the movies we got were a very specific depiction that did not necessarily align with what was in people's heads but yeah i mean i take your point i think like the, not to go too far but i think one of the reasons i think the mandalorian works for me is it's a whole new lore and it's not like this thing, yeah, they have to keep on making yeah, the, the Jedi finally. and the Force work. Now we have the new lore we can kind of, you know, riff off of and kind of do new things. And I think to the point, like you were bringing up, like, do you, like I, I would rather have the length, because if, if we didn't have this Tatooine Jabba's Palace sequence, you know, what would we have? Would we just have more of this, which to me would have been, I would prefer the Jabba Palace stuff. Not, I, I appreciate it. And I'm glad we went back to Dagobah just because I think Yoda's is such one, of the, one, one of the best characters in the whole series frank oz is amazing um so i think it's an important scene but i i'm glad it's as short as it is and you know does what it does and that's it and i don't i don't know what else you would add then if you if you shortened like the the jabba stuff speaking of yoda the reason he's in this movie is richard marquand he wasn't he wasn't in the story outline or whatever and then when marquand showed up he was like well you have to see yoda again he was so integral in an empire like you need to bring yoda back like you have to have some closure with that and i think i think he was right on the money and killing yeah. him too was i think key especially if you're not going to kill han or anyone else like that like i think his death is pivotal in that yeah sense. yeah well that well that was lawrence kasdan actually we have to kill like it needs to feel <laughs> kasdan wants blood i just that, that's that's literally a notorious <laughs> big lyric someone's got to die <laughs> <laughs> lawrence kasdan was saying somebody has to die he wanted it to be han and George Lucas was like, no. Keep your hands off my Han. Well, he, uh, he gave a number of reasons. I mean, you know, first of all, he wanted this to be a happy ending, uh, you know, which I get, I think is valid. And he also supposedly said dead Han action figures don't sell. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You don't know that. <laughs> yeah, like, literally, know. literally dead. <laughs> X dies. Yeah. No points of articulation. <laughs> no, but that said, like, I get that. Like, I'm sympathetic to that uh, point of view. And again, I don't think he's wrong. Like, this was my favorite Star Wars movie for my entire childhood. I think he was right. Han shouldn't die. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I'm I happy. Yeah. One thing that drives me crazy every time I see it, you know, you were talking about Han saying goodbye to the Falcon, but uh, the scene right before between Han and Lando where he's like, I want you to take her. I mean it, take her. You need all the help you can get. And then Lando's like, all right, old buddy, but I know what she means to you. And then there's a sight gag. They cut to the Falcon is in the background and you realize that they're talking about this. But Han says she's the fastest ship in the fleet. That line ruins what would have been a perfect sight gag. You think that they are talking about Leia. And then it turns out, no, he's actually talking about his ship, right? 
<laughs> and it drives me crazy because it's just that one line. If he didn't say that, the whole thing would really it was right play there. as a Yeah, it's right there. It's I mean, the way that it's staged and edited and even written, except for that one line, it's all like this is supposed to be a joke. Uh, but for some reason, you step on your own joke. I don't know. It just it just drives me crazy every time I see it. <laughs> Shot for comedy. I wanted to. Yeah, um, sorry. Oh, like uh, Tanab. Do you ever look at what that maneuver is? No, I don't I know. Found, like, I think I found it. I have to look up where it was like from the Galaxy Newsnet, like news things from like the Star Wars Adventure Journal that was published in like 95. So probably around the time like newsletter came out. And it's like this little, <laughs> it's like this little trading guard, like news, uh, update of like explaining what happened. And basically like he was like on Tanab, like looking from a spaceport and there was pirates coming to steal the resources from there. And another guy, he's like, I bet I can take care of that. And another guy that was nearby just bet him or like a brewery, like the deed to a brewery that he couldn't do that. So he's like, oh yeah, like I'll take that bet. And then he like goes up and I think he like harnesses like chunks of the ice ring of the planet and like throws it at the pirates and then like hits them with like counter nets. And then that's what does it. And he wins a brewery out of it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It was actually, they were going to use that story. But then now when they were early drop of Solo, that was going to be the whole second half of the movie is to knob. And like there was going to be the Crimson, cool. Crimson Dawn and like Cloud Riders, uh, like fighting over resources on, I guess, like, you know, in the atmosphere. That's uh, interesting. That was going to be the entire. And I think they they, they had scoped out like uh, they were going to shoot it in. I think Mexico, like the rainforest of like Mexico, because it's like a jungle planet. That's and then cool. there was one one other Tanab thing is in the Mandalorian. Bill Burr mentions in it, like the part where they're trying to infiltrate, and uh, that Impeller officer like starts like asking uh, Mandalorians like information, and Bill Burr comes and saves him. Mm -hmm. He's like, "You have to speak up." He lost his hearing in Tanab, which makes it sound like Vietnam. But like, <laughs> it's like that doesn't sound like anything. Like, so what, like, so wait, like, what is Tanab? Like, what is like? Is that a big <laughs> like? What happened there? You now we're back to square one. Thank you for laying all the Tanab wisdom on us. Like I, I, <laughs> I was like, pause it. Like right when I was, I was like, I need to find out what Tanab is. Like, what's and like that's a, that's a, all the information you're gonna find on it. Siri, bring me to Wikipedia. <laughs> what is Tanab? <laughs> well, speaking of Vietnam, Endor and the Ewoks. Yeah, this is George Lucas's Vietnam. I mean, he was gonna be part of Apocalypse Now in one way or another. That was he was early in the development of that. That was supposed to be his and John Milius's movie, and they were going to shoot it on 16 millimeter. They were going to go to Vietnam while the war was still happening, mind you. And it was kind of going to be like Haskell Wexler's A Medium Cool, where he shot a lot of it at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Like, you know, mixing docu-style with like a narrative. That's what they were inspired by. Like they were going to go to Vietnam and kind of make this satirical Dr. Strange lovish docu-style movie in Vietnam. And like, if you could just imagine John Milius and like tiny George Lucas, it's fucking Ren and Stimpy in the jungles of Vietnam with like a couple of 16 millimeter Bolexes and Nagras, like, like, you know, making a bonkers satire comedy. But anyway, instead of making Apocalypse Now, he decided to do Star Wars instead. But a lot of the DNA, a lot of the issues that he wanted to deal with and explore with Apocalypse Now, the quote unquote primitives winning a battle against a much superior force with superior technology. Like that was always where this story was heading. And so Endor and the Ewoks, that is George Lucas's version of Vietnam. I mean, this is Vietnam for nine-year-olds. I mean, is what yep. this is. I mean, it's kind of great 
agitprop, I guess, in a sense, in that way, you know, like, no, it is. It, I mean, they're, they're the, the good guys are the, the Viet Cong in this movie. And it's and it's awesome. Yeah. So whenever a Star Wars fan says, like, you know, stop making Star Wars political, I'm like, bro, the, the, <laughs> the original trilogy was the Empire is the U.S. and the Ewoks are the Viet Cong. I mean, that is literally what was in George Lucas's mind. The Emperor is literally Nixon. The throne room is shaped like an oval, and that is not unintentional. Does that make Hanalea yeah. like the Soviets and the Chinese arming the uh, the Viet Cong? <laughs> it could be. I don't know. What do we think about the Ewoks? I like them. Yeah, <laughs> I like them. I have I have no problem. I, I don't know. Like I know there's hate, and I I've never well, got it. They're I, not inherently. They don't have and in a different world. Like they didn't have to be like. I know. I think people don't like them because they're like. Uh, Cute. kind of like a cynical yeah cute like for made for marketing type of thing but like they don't have to be that based on this movie like they they have the potential to be like kind of ferocious and like a little like weird and scary they're kind like, of scary they looking yeah they're scary looking <laughs> they're, the teeth are kind of terrifying i like the sequence when leia feeds uh, a cracker to wicket yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like i just i i i enjoy it like it's like hey i'm gonna take off my helmet don't worry about it let's have a cracker like i <laughs> I'm in that moment with them. Like I'm, I'm kind of hungry. I'm watching Jedi. <laughs> like, like we're mostly through the movie. <laughs> like I, as a kid, I just, I, and also the music cues are really good. That, that kind of echoes sound. And like John Williams score is totally on display here. I think it's his best score. Um, you it's know, I, I think there yeah. are things in empire that are fantastic. He takes them, builds on them. He builds on everything he's done before. Like a lot of the effects work, the scores are so good. I particularly like the Ewok scores. And I think in combination with Ben Burtt's sound design, the score is so good here. And just like the musical cues, it is a little comedic. And because they're cute with a little bit of the comedic movements, I, I could see why, you know, Star Wars fans at the time might be opposed to Ewoks. But Mickey's right. They got teeth and those things, like they're going to eat those people. They they tied them to sticks yeah. and they're going to they're going to cook them no and qualms. eat them with 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 those, yeah. with those little Ewok teeth. Like and they can turn on a dime just by being. They're like, oh, you can charm them, and like, okay, now we're not going to eat you, which is even scarier. Like, <laughs> and the, the leader terrifying. that starts with a P, he is scary looking. Like just oh, his design, yeah, and everything. he is. Yeah, I mean, the Ewoks yeah. got themselves a cartoon show. I mean, so did the droids. I mean, the two most marketable aspects of Star Wars were robots and Ewoks at the time. But uh, Chirpa's terrifying. But fortunately, we have someone like Paplu who jumps on that speeder bike to create a, a distraction. I mean, Paplu, to, to me, is the real hero of Return of the Jedi. Um, and, <laughs> and but We've not got only someone like Paplu, <laughs> and, and we're, we have to be thankful for it. Um, but but it just shows you like there's a lot to like read into these Ewok. I mean, what was it shortened backwards for for Wookiee? Like, there's a lot of things. Like, originally they wanted Wookies for Return of the Jedi or cost, and they didn't want to bring because, like, Kashyyyk, like, like Wookiees know technology. Um, they just don't necessarily choose to live with it per se. I, I don't know what what the actual like story behind it is, or if it's cheaper for Ewoks. I I don't remember. Well, George Lucas said because I just watched it in From Star Wars to Jedi, he couldn't make them Wookiees because he showed Chewbacca, and he obviously wasn't a primitive, and he uh, he knew his way around technology. I still think that it, you still could have done it because Chewbacca was kind of removed from his his home. Like it's I mean, yeah. to my mind, like it still would have been fine. But I think to really to really underscore the thematic content, I think is why he had to make it clear that no, 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 these are very primitive people creatures, right? 
The interesting thing about the Ewoks too is that I don't know where I read this. I think it was maybe one of the uh, Jonathan Rinsler making of Return of the Jedi, but um, George Lucas, his instructions were don't be afraid of cute. I think some of the initial designs were a little more fearsome. And I think that's actually an interesting move. I think, you know, the cynical reading is like, oh, he wants he wants it to be kid friendly to sell more toys or whatever. But I think that that actually really enhances the idea that the fearsome empire is brought down. Not only are they primitive creatures, but they're also cute. Like the empire is destroyed by cuteness. I think it's actually <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of a delicious sort of a metaphor there or, or whatever it is. But also sort of highlights how their their underlying nature or like that they're not necessarily like cute is almost a not an afterthought, but like a, a layer on top of like what they were conceived as. No, and also it's very similar to um, it's sort of the idea with Yoda taken to the extreme. It doesn't always look on the surface what you would expect. You know, Yoda, the idea that this tiny little froggy creature is the most powerful <laughs> Jedi master and it's like 11 inches tall, right? Right. And can't and he can't put together a real sentence. Right, and he can't <laughs> he can't speak forwards. The idea that appearances can be deceiving. I think the Ewoks are the ultimate expression of that. You know, the empire would never consider them a threat and they don't. But you know what they got? They got those black eyes, like a doll's eye. They got, you know, you should be ter- <laughs> <laughs> you should be terrified of these little of these little these little furry tooth things. Because uh, I was just I was looking through uh, uh, the Return of Jedi sketchbook, um, and it, it's all like a lot of like the preliminary concept drawings, and um, in there they say like there were supposed to be two types of creatures inhabiting uh, Endor, and you know, the Yuzums, this the tall like they're furry with like long stilt like legs. They say one is in Jabba's court. Um, yes, yes, yeah. And actually, he's kind of a rod attached to the wall. He doesn't really move a lot. He's actually highlighted in the aforementioned Jedi rock sequence. He's the CG singer. Oh, but like he's the yuzum. So That's yeah, so they is. didn't do that because of technical difficulties. And like you know, the key features were like you know, pugnose face. A lot of the early concept designs are pretty much just like you know, hamsters with uh with with bows and arrows. And like I mean, that's and to me like that makes sense. I'm I'm fine with it. And again, like a lot of people think you know they're too cute, they're teddy bears, but they're they're fierce. Like again, I'll bring up Paplu. Uh, you know, he he's an adventurer. He he's a risk taker. And like uh, also somewhat technically minded, because if you think about it, like they've been watching the Imperials, you know, ride their speeder bikes for a while now and without any any prompting, jumped on, you know, through the throttle and boom, blast off. So like uh, smart, intuitive, uh, intuitive bear creatures. He's also a little stinker. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's the best way to describe them, I think. Again, to to point that like I think like they look cute. As in terms of a look, but again, I think they are kind of, I, I guess like it's cute the way like they share the cracker with Leia or whatever. There are some cute, but overall they, they are fearsome creatures. And I was thinking it's kind of interesting, like compared to like maybe like E.T. Like he's pretty ugly, but he ends up being this nice, um, pure whole being he's of a kindness. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he's like cute, like looking things that are <laughs> furry are just like, now nah, we're just going like, to kill and eat these people. We don't care. They're hungry, baby. I love that one that one Ewok in that scene you were talking about where 3PO is having story time and he's basically recounting the whole the whole trilogy to the Ewoks. I love that one Ewok, the the old Ewok, he's like he's he's like smoking a pipe or something and he's kinda of like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, that goes back to like the Rancor trainer too. Like these just little details. That guy with the pipe yeah. and then the baby <laughs> Ewok terrified, like the Vader sound. He's like, Oh god, oh god. <laughs> 
Like they don't have to throw these things in and they do. And it just makes it a whole world. And it's, it's great. Not to go back to Jabba's palace for too long, but the Renko thing, uh, uh, trainer just reminded me again, I kind of like in Boba Fett with Danny Trejo, how they kind of continued that tradition. Like all the, all the yes. trainers just kind of have an attachment to the Rancors. Cause he's like, he kind of yeah. like baby docks his, his own. So yeah. I guess there's Rancor that trainers the are, trainers like, are. <laughs> they're, they're the pit bull owners of that universe. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. And it's interesting too, because what he, what Danny Trejo says about the Rancor's nature retroactively makes you feel really horrible for this Rancor. It's like the only reason yeah. he's like this is because they're, they're mistreating him and he's, 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 you know, he's hungry and scared. And he's like, okay, if I have to sing for my supper or whatever, you know, they're not fierce unless you treat them badly. It's kind of poignant and sad. Um, something, cool with the Ewoks and, and Endor is like, you know, similarly, the, the ATST kind of gets its moment to shine. It's like you take the AT-ATs from the beginning of Empire and you have like the mini versions. Yeah. I, that's just, again, that's, again, like we were saying before, just cool production design. That's just an awesome looking fun thing, you know? It's like, yeah. And you could say, yeah, it's going to be a cool toy and maybe that's why, but it also is just like yeah, one of those things that as a kid just sticks out of more than anything in your mind is like, man, these two cool yeah. things and these two legs that can shoot lasers. And and also a lot of the effects, like there's this one shot where the ATST is walking forward and then the camera pans over to a bunch of stormtroopers running. And like there was no computer motion tracking. Like they created this shot where they had to manually make that camera move with the go motion the stop motion but the um the animated model of the atst like to have a moving shot like that that doesn't even call attention to itself like it didn't have to move but the fact that it moves and you don't even i mean it's so invisible it doesn't stand out like just makes you buy the reality of it so much yeah. that that's a lot of the effects in this movie especially like you know we were talking about the space battles uh, compositing that many ships. It was the first time they'd ever done that many in like single shots. And it's just like for seconds, mere seconds on screen, they're compositing, you know, like 15, 18 ships in a shot around the Millennium Falcon. And it's just, it's gone in a flash, but the impact of that shot, and it really is, I think some of the best looking uh, physical effects composited work like in any movie. And to me, it just reads better than uh, like any kind of CGI versions I've seen. I like, I have yet to, to see a CGI version that uh, I, I guess maybe you could say like in rogue one, there are elements that do feel a little bit, th th that one is the only one that I recall where the, where the ships actually feel and have the kind of weight that I think they need. But he CG'd over physical models in that. I think that's why. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they probably and like, did some of that yeah. like, a purposeful, like uh, looking like stop motion or puppetry, like with the CGI. And, and Jedi Jedi's unmatched in, in those effects. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, it, it's that seamless ATST that's it's walking. It's like, yeah, it's just part of the story. It's not, we're not showing off the effect. It is really is designed to be forgotten. Like, if you're thinking about it, it's taking you out of the story. And that's kind of what's great about where Return of the Jedi got to. I do still like the look of the uh, speeder bike chase, too. I mean, it's straight up awesome. I love the sound of it, too. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like this. So, like, it's a P-38 like, Lightning. What? Oh, is that what it is? Oh, really? Yeah, that mixed That's with a, something else. Ben Burt makes a P-38 Lightning. And a slide lightning. whistle. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Did you see the animatic that they made 
before like they make like a model, little miniature model just to get the shots right with the action figures yeah they feature that very heavily in from star wars to jedi and that as a kid like watching that was one of the things that made me realize like oh maybe this is something i could do had a doi look to it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Speaking of the Spider's Beak chase and all this stuff is like, I was almost white knuckling. I haven't seen this in so long. I hadn't seen Return of Jedi like 10 years, maybe 12. And I was one of those people like, nah, no physical effects better than CG. And I'm going to, and you know, and I always say that, but then I, I turned this on. I'm like, am I going to be proven? Am I going to watch this and be like, Ooh, yeah, this isn't as good as I remember as a kid after the last 15 years of CG stuff. And I saw no, nothing that like, it was good. It's better. Like I appreciated everything this, this did. And I was, I think, especially worried about the, the speeder bike scene of that just being like, yeah, that was clearly just going to be some people in front of a blue screen. And it wasn't. It was like, it's so much better than I even remember how well it was Well, you done. get like the full like sense of like that expansive space and it also, but without any sort of like uh, like CGI hanging over it. Like it's like you can tell it's a real yeah. space, but it just goes on forever and ever. I like, think the only I think they, yeah the only thing that I felt like was like a little iffy was the the AT uh, ST on the logs getting tripped up on the logs. That's so funny though because both of those were animated by Phil Tippett, so there is the some of Ed, of Ed two, yeah, so there is some of Ed two oh nine in this uh, <laughs> nice. that that animation. It's the same. It's the same artistic creative mind. It's the same hands manipulating. But that shot actually, Mickey, I love that shot because like the, I mean. I think it works like it doesn't um, stand out to me as as, uh, you know, not passing muster or whatever. But that aside, the believability aside, like the the amount of work that they had to do uh, to make uh, like to track the ATST, the animation of the ATST. It's so painstaking for the shot that lasts, I don't know, less than five seconds on screen. It was worth it. All, all of no, that it's totally least, worth it. Yeah. It's described in detail in the Jonathan Rinsler making of, and it had been alluded to in other places, but uh, they called it uh, Black Thursday, where basically they were zeroing in on completing the shots for the end battle and stuff. And uh, this one day, George Lucas shows up and he just like threw out half the shots and was like, I have to do them over again. You know, like it's not good enough. And Joe Johnston and Richard Edlund and other guys at the shop, they got plastered and stayed up all night and like were really pissed off. But then they they went they went back to the drawing board and recreated all these all these shots. I think, Russ, you're right. Like this is the zenith of this kind of of expertise and technique for so many reasons. It's like the pinnacle of this kind of of technology, this kind of work, these particular creative artists' skills are being harnessed to the absolute limit of what they could do and what the technology could do. And, and you hit the nail on the head. It's it's really like all of these effects are in service of stories, visual, like seconds, moments. Uh, and because they didn't have to worry about, you know, like achieving this one little moment, well, we could do this whole, we could have shield generators over entire, uh, you know, walking army troops. And it just, uh, limitations are really, I think what made it so sweet and so, so tasty. It really, it really like, like you're getting a little bit, but it's done so well. It's done the best they could possibly do with the technology at the time. I don't think CGI is necessarily not done the best they can do at the time with the technology, but I think 
it's it's looked at differently. I don't think it's treated as a sweet as a sweet savory morsel, you know, or like you know, like like a, like a dessert, like a little like a tiny little aperitif, you know, like a little like a little. Like yeah, a, no, <laughs> no, no. Well, I think you're exactly right. Like, uh, contrast this with the opening space battle at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, which is, I think, the nearest Star Wars equivalent. And actually, in terms of the mm. throne room dynamic, is actually you're you're supposed to see this, you know, as sort of a mirror of that sequence. I mean, it is impressive in certain ways. That first shot, like the first shot where you're following the two starfighters and then they go uh, down in and reveal the battle. It's like there's so much happening and that's one shot and you follow along with the two fighters in, weaving in and out of all this stuff. And you just subconsciously know like that shot is impossible. That's that's it. it we know it can't happen. And there is no restraint because... And I think you're exactly right. Like there were limitations, like physical limitations that uh, were there from the technology. And when you approach CGI as like a magic button, fix it all, we could do anything. How do I say this? Like with the way they had to get these shots and do all this work to get these little moments, it really makes you think about every shot, every frame, like does this need to be here? Should this be here? How does this work with everything else? You're forced to edit before you even start. And, and that's, and that's really like, it's like this, it's like you're editing the visual effect because of your limitations of resources. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just like refinement. Like the thing you're getting has been filtered through so many passes, so many ideas and concepts and people saying, yes, no, yes, maybe. And just, and, or even having to rework it. I mean, like, uh, humans are a finite resource in filmmaking and and to make it the team uh, redo what they've just uh, sweat over, you know, and bled over uh, because it wasn't good enough. Like, that, I mean, maybe that's pushing it too far. Um, but the, the end result of Return of the Jedi, like it, it, I think it really like Mickey said, it, it stands up. It holds it holds up. And like, yeah, there's a few moments in the speeder bike chase that I look at. And I'm like, eh, yeah, they're they're on they're on two kind of bouncy speeder bikes. But I do remember as a child uh, going to MGM Studios and they had a speeder bike uh, set up at the Star Tours area. And I just remember thinking like, this is the coolest thing. As I sat on that and I was like, speeder bikes are awesome. This is great. The design looks cool. They hold up. And my memory of the excitement of the film, and I think it was uh, in the Leonard Maltin uh, Star Wars interviews with George Lucas before uh, the THX remastered VHS version. Yeah. Um, uh, Lucas had said, like, you know, Star Wars 77 was, was bright and sunny and in desert. And then Hoth was icy and cold. And then Jedi wanted to be green. Like, he wanted those differences in, in environments in the browns and the earth tones and the yeah, yeah. And, to, and to have the speeder bikes going through that space and i think it was a, a steady cam that they used yes. going through the redwood forests the, yeah the mm. inventor the inventor of the steady cam garrett brown am i pulling that out of my ass is that his name it's garrett something uh, yeah but anyway the steady cam was a new thing i think Halloween. Had, garrett brown you're correct it was shining right it was shining and then rocky and then this basically yep. Yeah. Bound for glory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to get these shots and they were like, well, let's call up the guy that invented the Steadicam and see if, because uh, like that was the only way that, that they could figure how to do it. And it looks amazing. Yeah. It, it, it really is perfect. a good match. He, he did a frame, like a step or something. He took a step and took a frame yeah. and took a step and did yep, a frame. Right. And then they played it at 24 frames per second back with the composite or something like that. So let's give you that yeah. high speed motion. Yeah. Yeah, and it works, and we hadn't seen any motion like that. I think in movies, up to that point, like no one had achieved that visual effect of that That's, speed, and yeah. 
the evolution of uh star wars special effects kind of reminds me of like the evolution of like original nes graphics like if you look at the original <laughs> like nes games so like the ones that were released in like the late 90s it's like they did everything they could possibly do with that technology but also i was gonna say like about cgi like uh the thing about that is that like i guess it's not so much of an issue now but like through the history of the last like 20 25 years like people just also ignored the limitations of it they thought like they're like oh we can do this like we do it was like no it looks like shit like but, like they think that they can do it 100% like I think the problem with it is you don't it's like you need to you need to put your own limitations on yourself to, to get the best results out of it you need to be judicious with how you use it when you use it and not use it as a crutch and I guess one thing especially watching these the Star Wars movies like, to, to, like something I don't understand when they use CGI is like I don't understand why we replace matte painting with CGI like to me it's yeah, just like watching these yeah, movies. Sure. Like map paintings are perfect. I don't. I don't get why we ever. But yeah, they really done well. Like, it's, like, it's something you well, don't. Well, they do digital maps. For. Yeah, but I guess. I guess that's maybe I'm more complaining about digital than actually like that's my issue. It's not yeah. CGI, but digital. Oh well, that sort of ties into what I was about to say. I do have to ask because I ask myself this a lot of the times. Like, how much do you think we have a bias because this is the aesthetic that we were raised on? And, you know, we're more accepting of them as quote unquote realistic versus CGI or digital techniques. Because, for example, like I was talking to somebody and they were talking about a shot in one of the new movies and how the effects like weren't up to par. And then I was like, well, sure. But if you look at, for example, the 8080s in The Empire Strikes Back, like like those don't look real. You can tell that it's an effect. So my thing is, I think... With a movie like this, a heavy special effects movie, the buy-in is you're either willing to go with it or not. I think for me, it's like, it's not, does it look real or not, but it, it's physical. I, I know it's a yeah. physical thing. And that's, I guess for me, like, I guess I have nothing against CGI, if you want to say. It's just, to me, it's almost a different medium. To, to, yeah, what, to like animation. what I think cinema is going back to the uh, Magic Lantern, to, to the Zoetrope, if you will. It's like, it's a physical thing in everything that's ever been done with special effects minus animation or whatever up to this point. CGI was like, you were doing something physical with a film strip and you were getting something onto a, finally onto a film strip by filming something in real life onto using light and that whole physicality. Like again, the physicality of it, I think that's what cinema is. You know, and then when you hit 1990 and all of a sudden you're like, it's, it's a video game, like, and all like video games are cool. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the age thing. Maybe that's us growing up with, I grew up with cinema, with filmmaking and I didn't grow up with video games. And maybe that's what, and that, no, no you might be right. And that, that, that maybe that it's not so much related to like a movie bifurcation. It's a video game. It's when video games became big bifurcation. What you're reminding me of is I think it's the Ben Hameen essay about the aura Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, you know, the the aura of the object, once you can mechanically reproduce it, you lose the aura that the work has because the art is an object. It's like created and it's imbued with all this stuff. And then as soon as you can basically recreate it through photography and you have a representation of it that's a stand-in for the quote-unquote real thing, you're missing the aura that the object was imbued with, and you're making it less special. And I'm wondering if there isn't something along those lines to what we're talking about. Film in and of itself, like the medium of cinema, like, you know, what is a movie? There is no genuine article like maybe the negative but like nobody watches the negative so what actually is a movie it's it's actually not a real physical 
thing. It's it's like a sculpture in time and light and shadow that is experienced in real time. I think it's experience. I think experience is the key word, right? Yeah. So, but it's interesting because it's not an object. Like it doesn't have the aura. So it is really interesting what you're saying, Mickey. But again, I have to ask, like, is it a distinction without a difference? Like maybe to no, to our eyes? I think the difference is you said it before is that like, it's an impossible shot. Like usually if anything we find wrong with CGI, it's either an impossible shot or it's presented as an impossible shot. And it just doesn't like, that's why it's, it would seem off in one way or another. So we have a concept of what a possible and impossible shot is. And one fits and one doesn't always. No, I think you're right. Because you look at the way The Force Awakens, a big part of the marketing was how like they're going back to practical effects. They're going back to like the old school way of doing things like blah, blah, blah. There was more model work in The Phantom Menace than there was in The Force Awakens. But the way that they use it is very different. They use it like the um the Plinket, Plinket, the the Uncar Plut, the Uncar Putt, I don't know what the fuck his name is. The guy that that's four more portions or whatever. <laughs> that guy. He's Simon Pegg in a latex mask, but they use CG to animate and articulate the mouth and some of the expressions. So they use it in a way, so it is real. It was really there. It's on set. But the judicious use of CG, they use it sparingly to augment what is there, which is, I think, a better use of the technology well, like, yeah that, that's like the new dark crystal that that uh the new season of dark crystal that was on netflix as the prequel to uh, the original film uh you know they're still using pretty much identical puppets muppets um but they're doing the eye blinks i think and uh, and some other minor things which i actually didn't perceive it still felt very puppety and i think it's the thing i think part of uh very often a lot of my issues are that like i'm living in my nostalgia for the past um I think one of the things people want to see out of Star Wars, and uh, it did happen in The Mandalorian, is seeing puppets that aren't perfect or seeing kind of like janky puppet movement. Um, I think part of that artifice, that physical artifice is what Mickey's looking for, what I'm looking for. Like, I kind of want to see it done physically, even if it's not perfect, because the, the same light that's hitting that Muppet is hitting the actor in the scene. And there's there that's that's our experience. The experience we're getting out of that is closer to reality than when you're making a perfectly seamless a seamless ship fly across a pond in whatever Last Jedi or no sorry uh, Rise of Skywalker. I think is that shot of the X wings flying over the water at Poe Dameron. Like I just I felt nothing. I actually think that's, think that's uh, the Force Awakens. So you're oh yeah, about. I don't I don't know. I can't remember. All those movies blend into one big blur, but. Uh, but yeah, it just, it doesn't read like anything to me because it's not, and, and if that were done a practical effects, it would be a model composited over water, but for whatever reason, the light hitting a plastic painted model is still reading better composited for me than, than the CGI. So when we're watching that space battle and like, I, I don't know, it must be like small animation when the emperor's like, uh, your friends are failing and looking out the window. Uh, I don't know what we're actually seeing out there. Really micro models or a little, like little, like hand-drawn 2d animation. So I don't know what that was actually. Yeah. I think it's probably a 2d animation. Like it may yeah. even just be yeah, like, like um, spots of uh, light. like razor. Yeah. yeah like razor yeah. cutouts on like, uh, like yeah. a sheet of glass or something. Someone's got um, an overhead projector and they're just doing a scroll <laughs> and they're rolling in the background. <laughs> so you just said something that I think is, I think you hit the nail on the head, actually. Uh, the difference is... Finally. <laughs> is, 
I think the difference is perfection. Perfection, real, true, true perfection, like true symmetry, like true straight lines, true right angles. They're unnatural. They read to us subconsciously as unnatural. So when you have a, a physical model, you have all of the real natural imperfections of yeah. the way the light interacts with the surface. And the lines are straight, but like real straight, not computer straight. Mm, to the eye. Yeah, yeah. Like, think uh, about the way the speeder bike scene would have looked if it was CGI, like, perfect today, like, CGI. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't look cool in its own way, but it wouldn't look, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. like it does, like, the cool way that it does actually look. Because you, that is real physical space that they're flying through. Yeah, well, what comes to mind, actually, when you just said that, is that sequence in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull when the chase through the forest. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah. And that looks fake. Right, exactly. <laughs> Oh, which is a weird well, thing to say. <laughs> oh, because I mean, well, I mean, this is also obviously fake. But it's like the parts are all real, <laughs> and then they're just composited. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Phantom Menace effects, and there's that one effects where, like, in all the all like on on the original DVD that came out in the uh, the BTS footage, they show that they painted all these matchstick heads different colors in this in yeah. the in the arena uh, in the podcast race. Uh, wow, well, well, uh, Pod Racer, we're doing the podcast. Uh, they were pod racing in the arena. Uh, and they're all and, and someone's underneath jiggling matchstick colored matchstick heads, and it reads as more realistic to the eye. Unfortunately, in that movie, because of the camera they used, I feel like a lot of the effects got flattened and a lot of the life taken out of them anyway. Because also it was like what rescanned later and digital effects were applied. Uh, but but they were doing hand painted things that were then digitized later. But they were still you know it still has that that element that's a little bit more organic. Whatever uh, human nature algorithm is flipping those those matchsticks on the bottom is more realistic than you know some sort of pre like animated uh sequence um of little of little tiny heads bobbing i suppose though russ you were right the first time they're doing the podcast now this is pod racing <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry I, 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 i'm glad i i opened that up look at your face you. like what have i done What's really interesting about that is that for my money, The Phantom Menace feels the most quote unquote Star Warsy of the prequels. And I think it's because it was shot on 35 millimeter film stock. Like if you watch a print of The Phantom Menace, I mean, it may be just for people of our generation and older, it feels more quote unquote real than the version that you watch on streaming where it has all the digital noise reduction and they try to make it look like the other two prequels, uh, which were shot on 2K digital video, which is wild. Yeah, sorry, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I was thinking of the other films. Phantom Menace was shot on 35. Yeah, but it still had that digital intermediate like post. Yeah, but so it's. So it's interesting in some corners of the internet, there are fan film restorationists. And if you look at the prints they have acquired and scanned of episode one, when you see it, not what we're used to seeing, which is like the streaming version that has been digitally scrubbed and everything looks kind of waxy. Like when you see it on film and it, it produces the colors the way that a film print does, it feels more like the original films did because I think of that quality. Well, it's back to Mickey's point. It's that plastic medium. It's like film film shot on film feels like film because it was on film. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, though, I mean, once again, like, is that... That's Star Wars. But, like, is that something that will die with us? I mean, like, is that a thing that actually... Oh, oh yeah. A lot of things are matter. I mean, there'll, there'll be hipsters 50 years in the future who will, like, you know, yeah. there'll be, like, some small collection. They're like, yeah, vinyl's better. And, man, they used to have this thing called 35 right. millimeter. And everyone else will just be like, yeah, okay, whatever, man. 
just gonna go watch Iron Man 10. <laughs> I guess what I'm really asking, and maybe there's no X. answer here. Iron Man <laughs> X, yeah. I guess there's no real answer here, but like, is there something inherently preferable, like in a vacuum? Yeah, I think so. To practical effects. Yeah, I, I think there is. Yeah. I think I don't, I don't have the yeah. language. I, I think philosophically, honestly, I, yeah, I think there I, is there's something, something that just. I, appeal, just a, I think a physical thing. I sleep yeah. better at night knowing yeah. it was a physical effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, would you rather have, would you rather get in like an e-card or like a physical card? I guess I wouldn't want either of those. Cause uh, what are you going to do? But like, like when, I think people that want that want a card, I think they want a physical card. You are reminding me of a, um, of a debate that I had with someone on the force.net Jedi council. <laughs> message board in like 2003 that is still there some guy was like <laughs> nice so this was right after attack of the clones i was like why would you make the clone trooper cg it's so easy to make you know a physical suit and like a lot of those shots you didn't need them to be cg when you could have just had the physical suit and some guy was arguing with me that that it was just as good and there's no reason to make a suit and i was like but no like the more real things you have in the image the better and the guy was like no like there's no difference the argument is he's saying I I don't see the difference. What is he accusing you of lying about seeing the difference? So, like you see the difference and he doesn't. Like, but even no, if well, you don't I mean, see I one of you like, has good taste, I don't know. Yeah. But but no, but even if you don't if you don't see the difference, I think there is something metaphorical. I don't know if that's the word I want. No, to no, use. it's in your bones. Or, if you're, I mean, there are people that won't turn off the the uh, motion smoother on their TV when they get it. So yeah, <laughs> oh, that's a good well, point. Like, it's funny, like, uh, people are pointing out there's, like, a whole thing now where people are saying, like, that the Euphoria creator's like, yeah, I'm shooting on 35 millimeter. And people are like, yeah, it's going it, to, you get it on HBO Max. Like, it's, you're never, right. it's so compressed. Like, why? But I'm like, no, I can see the I, green. I think the cinematography, yeah. I, I think, I think the way it's going to, like, the way your lights are going to play on a 35 millimeter, it doesn't matter if you're capturing the whole thing when you, when it comes off HBO Max or not. There's other aspects of it being physical that affects it. Other than just the pure the, the, look yeah. of what you get in the end product, or the way actors will react to it, you know, that that could be an argument to that guy. It's like, does it matter if it looks just as good? I'm like, yeah, it looks just as good to us getting it in our eyes. But then the actors who are, you know, um, composited against it will react differently to, a, you know, 100 extras yeah. than they are. Their to... performance doesn't look as good and you just don't know because you don't. <laughs> yeah. 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 Apparently season two, two of HBO's Euphoria was shot entirely on Kodak Ektachrome film. I, I know. Are you I serious? Yeah, yep. so they wanted the first season though it wasn't shot entirely on film. Certain sequences were, but they pushed and pushed and got the whole season two shot on film. And I got to tell you, it looks like it, and it looks fantastic. Yeah, um, I love that show. And, and that's yeah, and that's like, uh, and it's right. Like whatever whatever's happening between the lens and the film plane, and how it's compressing and and chemically mixing, and like how how skin tone looks and how the edge of a face will drop out, uh, out of focus, whatever that is, all those things. It's the same for me as uh, an ATST stumbling on a pile of logs that are composited in, in a second shot. Uh, thank you, Phil Tippett. It's just like, and also even like an empire, like they were shaking the table as they were doing the shots uh, to give like an extra blur, mo like a motion blur uh, to the, to the uh, stop motion, which was like a kind of a new innovation for them. It's like these little things, uh, I think will always add to that that feeling you get watching it versus like yeah something super smooth even when you apply film grain back to a CGI effect it you're just painting in film grain and and it's not there there's no physical process happening there maybe in the future certain algorithms I know there's gate shutter and things that have been added to digital from certain cinematographers um 
I think that that happened. Uh, the cinematographer for Knives Out, working with Ryan Johnson, uh, has uh, like a certain process uh, to, to replicate film. But ultimately, you're replicating it versus it actually happening in camera. Um, all, all that being said, it, it actually brings me back to uh, thinking uh, the throne room on the on the second Death Star. Uh, so the Emperor is sitting in this, this giant chair. The throne room is really interesting because it's on this giant spindle off the face of this thing. Um, and that's really the only argument I can think of for actually having built out the Death Star. Uh, in my in my opinion, if you're going to build a second Death Star, and this happens later in, in kind of in Dark Empire in the series, just build the weapon and build like a frame around it. You don't need to build an entire space station. <laughs> like it's a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of guys. Well, just, ha just have your Star Destroyers and just build the gun. Just, just build the center portion and you don't have like, but was that all just, part of their, their ruse though? Or like, they're like, they didn't even know this is operational. Well, yeah, that, I mean, I mean the, the ruse was part of it, but like, that's a lot of time and money granted they're, they're, you know, they're, they're conquering worlds and, and have, you know, enslaving people and, and taking all that to build their weaponry. But like, why build the whole thing? Just build the gun. That's no, I mean, my You're kind of right. I'm, actually, that actually would have made it a little more interesting i think if they were like okay we're obviously not going to rebuild that whole thing again because it took 20 years but we are <laughs> we are going to we are going to rebuild the gun and that's really all we need much easier to defend a gun than an entire space station too you know actually in the original rough draft of return of the jedi they were trying to destroy a gun that was on the forest moon of had abaddon which was the name of the imperial city planet and it was a defense thing that the rebels were going to land on the moon of the imperial city planet take over the gun and turn it onto the so imperial capital the guns in so they scrapped that for they scrapped that for a yeah, i was gonna say <laughs> guns in yeah which yeah, is I mean, cool. that, that's like, pure like riffing on world war ii like mission movies like that's that's kind of awesome i'm down for that i mean that's cool like like again the reason we didn't get that is because george lucas didn't think that they could do the effects of the city planet Maybe he's well, then right. Put it on an empty planet. Uh, I don't know. Put it on, put it on, not an ice planet, but put it on the forest planet. Just, you know, just do the thing you can do. And then matte paint in your giant gun. It would have worked. I would have been for it. To be clear, the giant gun was on the forest moon. Like that uh, was like the defense. Oh, hey, but it would be destroying the, the city planet. You're saying. Yeah, right. right. Uh, so, gotcha. so, so they were going to land on the moon and take over the gun. And instead of shooting it outward, like they were going to turn it inward. You know, the problem is like, had Blade Runner come out earlier, they'd have been like, oh, we can do we can do an industrialized city planet like like no problem. Yeah. And the irony of that is that in Attack of the Clones, a lot of like the the underbelly of Coruscant is is clearly influenced by Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah. With Turnbull, he I think he already said no to Star Wars. They got, they got to Turnbull, Douglas Turnbull. Is that his name? Oh, oh, did the Blade uh, Runner oh, yeah. Doug like, Trouble, they had, no. like, I think Lucas asked him if he wanted to work on Star Wars. and He's like, nah, I'm good. I think he was <laughs> I think. He was busy on another thing. Doug Trumbull probably uh, just passed away recently. Yeah, he did Blade Runner. He also did Star Trek: The Motion Picture. He obviously he uh, he famously Close encounters. He, uh, yeah, he um, he directed um, Silent Running, I believe. Yes. and he he worked on 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is really like the progenitor for all this stuff. Like all these guys saw 2001: A Space Odyssey and and started to get into this. Well, Silent Running has some of the best. Uh pre-star wars uh like droid robot situations going on i mean a lot of people would say, look at his his robots and say like r2d2 is just totally a riff on the silent running dewey drone the studio that released silent running tried to sue 20th century fox yeah. uh saying that they that they ripped them off and they lost but or they settled out of court i don't know uh but i think the final thing here let's talk about vader luke and the emperor 
and that whole confrontation. First of all, I think Ian McDermott, who was only 37 years old when he played the Emperor in 1982 or whatever, I think he's fucking phenomenal. I think he is yeah. so good. Yeah, I think like the the best actor in the series, like an actor actor, like you know, like like Harrison Ford's got his mojo going on, but he's like and into the prequels, I think too. He is no, yeah, he's also one of the highlights <laughs> of the prequels. Like the idea that this guy was thirty seven, he's he's our age, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and mm. and he gives this incredible performance. I, I mean, feel so old. You don't have well, a weird well, emperor face. Watching yeah. him, watching <laughs> watching him and his the physicality. It's just yeah, like that. That's that to me. This is why the Oscars don't matter. That's an Oscar winning performance right there. Like it's just it trans transformative of, of a person. Uh, and just I don't know. As a kid, that was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. That that character, just like oh, this guy's yeah. ugly and terrifying. To me, it's definitely like a theater actor doing theater actor stuff in a movie, and somehow it works because it's so foreign. It fits, and it's definitely it fits, to me it's experimental yeah, it, theater acting or something you know no, because it, it fits yeah, yeah it fits what fry's talking about like this is this calls for theatricality yeah totally i don't think like not from everybody like it couldn't be for yeah. everybody every <laughs> character doing that right. like right it fits from the villain yes yeah. <laughs> yes you see chewy doing Was anyone else also like <laughs> confused like when when like you were a kid and phantom menace came out and you're like I don't understand how the same actor who is clearly like really yeah. old in Return of the Jedi is like playing a younger version. And I'm like trying to figure who is this guy? Like he was like 80 in Return of the Jedi. I'm very. <laughs> That's funny. So what do we think about the whole dynamic here? So the Emperor and Vader are trying to turn Luke to the dark side. Do we think Vader thinks Luke is going to join him still when all is said and done? Is this like a three-way sort of a game of, you know, everyone has competing motivations here and they're... I think Vader's kind of on autopilot in a way. The whole, from probably before, like, even before when Luke gets there, when he meets him, like, kind of like two-thirds of the movie. I think somewhere between Empire Strikes Back and there. I don't think he's, like, even... I don't think he's even thinking about... Like, he's just kind of, like, he doesn't even know what he's thinking. Vader knows his limitations with the Emperor, is what you're saying. Like, he knows he can't yeah. go... Like, yeah, like, but he's literally... I don't think his brain literally can't think past, like, what's happening or what's going to happen because he knows, like, he doesn't want to kill Luke, like, in the back of his mind, and he doesn't... Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, so, like, he's just kind of, like... He's just kind of, like, on autopilot. Like, it's just what he'd been, he's been doing. And, and then, finally, at like, that last moment, he, his brain start fires up. <laughs> and he makes his decision. Do you think he realizes that the Emperor wants Luke to kill him? I mean, actually, I don't even know if the Emperor wants Luke to kill him. Like, I think the Emperor wants the stronger one to win. And if that's Vader, yeah. it's Vader. If it's Luke, it's Luke. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Revenge of the Sith and Count Dooku didn't exist at this time. You know, you can imagine, like, he, he's got to see what's going on here. I mean, he's seen this happen before. Yeah, because I, I think for Palpatine, like, it's like yeah. one of those things is like, if Luke wins, Luke is the more powerful. He's the foretold one who's more powerful and he gets him as an apprentice. Or if Vader kills Luke, then he just like, I mean, there's obviously some sort of psychological thing he's had on Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, his entire career or whatever. And it just it just will give him it's more and more of him having power, like like some sort of psycho power over Darth Vader of like, yeah, I made you kill your son. You're never going to overstep your bounds with me type of thing. Yo, dude, that's true. That's as fucked up as what Obi Wan and Yoda are trying to get Luke yeah. to do. No, it's it's the everyone, same thing. They're doing like it's everyone wants. And so it really Luke is Vader. Vader and Luke together. <laughs> like they are kind of almost like this like two forces pushed into this. And I think you're right. I think it's this three way where like Vader knows that Palpatine, or Vader thinks at least that Palpatine actually wants Luke to kill him. But Vader's probably playing a game of like, but what if I can get Luke to kill Palpatine? And it's the two of us against the world. And then Luke is like, what if I can get Vader to kill Palpatine? And then it's me and my dad back. 
for the good side, oh, you know, be, like that's. Yeah, I almost think of him as like a cult member. Like he's just kind of yeah. like going through his programming. So he's not even thinking about like if uh, if he's trying to get Luke to turn against him. Like he he doesn't have the tools to like kind of like think about that until he finally kind of makes himself. Yeah, which is why he probably talks about des destiny a lot. You know, it's like well, yeah. no, whatever happens, you know, it's destiny. Can't not my know. fault. Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. That's actually very interesting. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it from both Fry and Mickey. Like, I think that, yeah, it's like it's like he's going through his cult programming and, and like he doesn't have the framework to even understand what is going on because yeah, he's, he's so like, deep. He's like thinking like a certain uh, certain language, like in certain terms. He was also a child when he became Vader. Like he doesn't he doesn't have any of like these adult like uh, cognitive skills <laughs> to yeah. handle it. And and be clouded by the dark side, yeah. Last time it was normal, it was Hayden Christensen. <laughs> yeah, something I think both Empire and Return is missing is is a, a Grand Moff Tarkin character. You know, like this kind of like Vader and the Vader's relationship to the Empire and to the Emperor is this this cult religious thing. And you know, the reason why Marv Tarkin was like this ult even more ultimate bad guy to Vader was that he's like now nah, he's playing his own political game, and you know, it, there's like more of a political aspect to his relationship with the emperor and to the empire and and i know they were saying there was like early drafts where moff gerard or however you're supposed to say his name was not kind of even early drafts like there were scenes like they shot it, it. Scene, like right? you could see a lot of the yeah like you could see a lot of the deleted scenes those deleted scenes rock by the way no it's very cool and there's a thing where the emperor is, is playing mind games with vader and he's pitting moff gerard or whatever his name is against vader and like he's doing that and it was there like they shot it there's a moment where Jajarad or whatever says to Vader like you know the emperor won't see you or whatever and then like he he starts to force choke him and it's really some cool stuff so but again very similarly to what happened in Revenge of the Sith where there's a lot of great stuff really interesting things that uh, were cut out to make room for in this movie the Luke story in Revenge of the Sith the Anakin uh, story like what ended up happening in both of those movies was it was way too long a lot of stuff had to go and they really had to focus on one thing and in this movie they really had to zero in on okay this is luke's story in revenge of the sith you lose all that stuff about padme and the group of senators in the senate and they're starting to form the rebellion and bail organa's there and all this stuff and all this really interesting stuff that you completely lose because otherwise it would have been like a three and a half hour movie and they were like okay we have to make it about anakin have to make it about anakin i think something similar happens here yeah i feel like a lot of space battle maybe got cut too like it feels like there could have been more as awesome as the space battle was, it's like you didn't actually get to see the B wings do anything, type of thing. Yeah, Sad. well, so yeah. so so they had a problem. So they had a problem with the wings of the B wing uh, were too thin, and they had a lot of problems uh, losing the wings in the compositing when they heat out the blue screen. So so they ended up not being able to use a lot of those shots i that guess makes that makes sense, sense but think, i'm thinking about like the x-wings as well x-wings have the x-wings the, the the foils have like really they're really thin so like i don't know must like, the angles I, I, used I, to shoot them but the b-wings are a cool design so what do we think about luke going to the dark side when i was a kid i didn't really see the big deal uh you know maybe i just wasn't really getting it but i was like just just don't go to the dark side like i don't and it's kind of <laughs> like what he and it's kind of what he does <laughs> in the movie yeah. he's just like nope i'm not gonna do it and, yeah. and I'm like, and I'm yeah, like, oh. right? yeah, like I don't really see. But what is really interesting, if you read again, 
I'm like a commercial for J.W. Rinzer's Making a Return of the Jedi. But when George Lucas explains how you fall to the dark side, it's it's basically it's like a meter, right? And the more evil things you do, the more your your dark side level rises. And then once you get to a certain point, it's like flipping a switch and then you're on the dark side, right? So if you have that in mind, what the Emperor's trying to do makes sense. He's trying to make Luke so mad that he trips the switch and he falls to the dark side. I think I agree with you as a little kid. I, I think the thing that makes me as an adult think like maybe the dark side is I can see going to it and like doing it is like, they say it's like, oh, the light side is hard. It's hard to be good. It's hard to do the light side stuff. And the yeah. dark side's just an easy hack. It's a hack. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, God, yeah. I mean, if I could win the battle by doing the easy thing, even I'll, I'll do that. Sure, whatever, whatever. And I'll deal with the dark side <laughs> later when it comes, you know? Well, no, I mean, I agree with you. Like, now I get it. Like, now it actually works for me a lot better than when I was a kid. Like, the Emperor is saying, I know you want to kill me. Kill me. I'm right here. But that is what will make him fall to the dark side. Like, it would be so easy. When It's easier when somebody's emotional. So, like, that's why, and that's why Anakin was in a position to have that flip, uh, that flip switch, like, really quickly. Make it somebody emotional. Then they, if you want to, if you want to manipulate them that way, then, then they're a little right. bit more easy. It worked for me. And I, I honestly think that's probably one of the best moments. Again, like, coming back and thinking as a kid is, like, even just thinking the three movies is almost one thing and what stands out to me is definitely like the, the line of like, I'm a Jedi like my father before me is definitely like, damn, that was good, you know, type of thing that I really responded to as a, as a kid. Totally. Yeah. By the way, I was reading the Tashin making of or they published a book about the making of the original trilogy and then another one about the prequel trilogy. And in the one about the original trilogy, the author, Paul something, I forget his name, he's interviewing George Lucas and George Lucas is is basically talking about how the original movies uh, were so not what he wanted. Like it was so it was so hard to get so little and blah, blah, blah. He wasn't really happy with so much of it. The author was like, I mean, there's got to be something you were happy with. Like, what's your favorite thing in the original movies? And George Lucas says, there's one nice shot in Return of the Jedi in the duel between Vader and Luke, that tracking shot that goes under the stairs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yep. I love that part. He was like, that was a pretty good shot. <laughs> <laughs> something else I, I want to say about the whole, that whole scene and uh, the Emperor in general too is, I, I and I, I think going back to the scene, we're relating this to like, this is the first prequel, the prequel to the prequel you know, a lot of similar things going on is I think John Williams is like on a whole other level with the Emperor's theme. But to me, like, yeah, that's Emperor's theme is like John Williams is kind of like getting more operatic, which then goes fully operatic kind of like in a sense in, in the next in episode one with Duel of Fates. I mm. think I think there's like, there's a through line to me between those two themes, which I think, you know, kind of works in that this idea that you're saying that the, the Return of Jedi is a prequel, but a prequel. Oh, yeah. Like there's also like I don't think it's the Emperor's theme specifically, but that moment that we were just talking about with that shot during the duel is the first time John Williams, he brings in the vocals like the chorus. Yep. And obviously that is the centerpiece of Duel of the Fates is is the, the choral chanting in that. Well, riffing on the John Williams, I think and I could be wrong, but in, in Jabba's palace, it sounds like he's actually incorporating uh, synthesizers uh, for the first he time is. in Wars his, his son, in he, his son is in Toto. Yeah. In that mood change, like there, there's so many things that have been heightened in Return of the Jedi. And that mood change with the synthesizers, like there's an evolution of his score. Like I think like John Williams is the ultimate like greatest evolution in Star Wars. Uh the effects and the music uh for me, like sure there's you know, those character arcs and things, but like the score to me, like I have the scores on cassette tape. They're so good. And and I actually 
I probably listen to the Jedi score more than any of the others because I think it just it takes what he started and builds on each each of the pieces, each of the themes, and he interweaves them so well. And that last act of of Jedi is just like the most interesting um, play of all all the pieces of of the themes that he's actually built in that time. I agree. I think you know, thinking about it, I think you're probably right. I think that the Jedi soundtrack is the one I probably listened to the most as a kid, for sure. I think oh, John so, Williams is definitely so MVP, you know, and and of the Star Wars. I I, I, don't, I think they would not have been <laughs> yeah. as great of movies as they are if it really wasn't for what he was doing musically. I think they they could easily have just been another kind of more V sci-fi picture, you know. Well, I'd say that yeah. right. Home Alone as well, like, you know, like, like, like <laughs> that could have like, easily been a B sci-fi Star Wars picture. Like John Williams Home Alone <laughs> elevates that film to like a whole other plane. Like I would say probably like one of the greatest like film score composers of all time you know for home alone i feel like it almost makes it more sinister in a good way like it wouldn't have that really it really does (laughs) it elevates like the quality of that film like like through the root like you know into the stratosphere of of what the film i think i saw that like uh uh, like the netflix like um like movies that made us or whatever (laughs) but (laughs) but but it's true like getting john williams and like and yeah and jedi i think is just probably the best example of his work and especially the throne room sequence like like uh when when luke is just when 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 luke's getting all sweaty and that lightsaber battle is just like it is ferocious it is just like hard strikes like death blows and honestly i still think it's the one of the best lightsaber duels in all of star wars um because it is really hacking death blows like just like pure anger um the strikes are all intended to hit and to kill like it really is like violent and in a way that like it it's ferocious, ferocious. Yeah. violent I'm, yeah I'm and pretty that, sure it's my favorite too yeah and it just it seems to be the most realistic like this is a duel to the death right now until he until ultimately he stops and he's like i won't <laughs> fight you so he realizes you know what he's doing but then you know he snaps back and it, it goes violent again oh, with that great shot like he realizes like oh shit like i am literally turning into my father <laughs> yeah and the, the the hand-to-hand recognition of like chopping off the hand looking at his own hand like like it's all there yeah he's like i just did to my father what he did to me i literally have a machine hand like shit i mean yeah i mean it might not be subtle but it's 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 fantastic it it's works yeah it's <laughs> a nice little like they, they kind of reminded you in the jabba scene when he gets shot in the hand you're like oh yes this will be important later. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah yeah now remember <laughs> so the last question that i have how do we feel about vader's redemption does that final act of sacrificing himself to save his son and taking out the emperor is that a real redemption does that make him a good guy again does that make up for the untold death and destruction only only in the sense that that's the best that you can do at that point (laughs) i don't know yeah like so then like if that that's i don't know can you it's more of a question of like are you willing to accept it in that context or not yeah Um, well so so it's interesting because the prequels actually make it not work for me. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Um, because when you just know him as Darth Vader, yeah. I mean, okay, sure, like it kind of works. Like you don't really think too much about it. It's like, oh shit, like he he did the right thing in the end. But then like when you see it as, you know, he did, I mean, he murdered children right. in Revenge of the Sith. Like, I don't know. It, it's this really interesting, problematic thing that he's basically saying, no, like like all is forgiven so like the movie, when you see the ghost of Anakin Skywalker alongside Yoda and Obi-Wan at the end, it's sort of like, oh, no, yeah, he did it. He turned he turned good again. I mean, there aren't any consequences. Even the prequel showed that he was emotionally like he loved uh, Padme. And like, so that's like 
kind of like where his heart is like uh so like when he does a sacrifice at the end of return of the jedi it's like you you know for to some degree it's for luke but like is it just for luke because like does he care about saving the galaxy pretty much or is it just kind of a like a personal redemption for him because like so that's kind of i think that would make a difference too like what is he doing this for is it literally just for luke because that, that's like kind of like that's like how his emotions work he just kind of yeah. like he loves he loves the people that he loves and doesn't care about anybody else yeah i mean that's a i mean that's certainly a way to read it he's lucky he died yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i think we would have the like a nuremberg trials of like star wars as the next movie if he like, dude, like, I frankly, for me, I would love to see that just me personally. Like, that really pushes all my buttons. And then, you know, something that I think is left unexplored, which I think is a missed opportunity, but um, they get into it in some of the, the novels. But Leia, when she becomes a leader in the New Republic, like, it's a scandal when people find out her dad was Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah I do remember that. I mean, like, imagine the dramatic potential there, the implications of being related to Vader and the implications of, like, Vader having to face the consequences for what he's done and really atone. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, I mean, I think I'm making my position clear. Like, I don't think what he, he does is really redemption. It's like, oh, thanks, guy. Like, at the, at yeah. the very last possible moment, you decided to do the least you could possibly do. He redeemed himself in the eyes of Luke. That was, right. that yeah. was... In, in that film's context, that's all that mattered. And, like, that's how yeah. I'm actually viewing the film. I'm actually not really trying to think about the prequels at all. Because I haven't seen them yeah. enough to have any type of, like, emotional resonance for me. So, um, like, and I've seen I've seen Jedi, probably one of the films I've seen the most in my entire life. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm cool with the redemption. And uh, I think it's all good at the end. Because you got that Ewok song. And uh, they're drumming on, on the drumming on helmets, and and like they're yeah. gonna have barbecue that's not human. Time. Yeah, yeah, and and like and also like the the attack teams down there. So you got you got Lando, you got Wedge, and like they're all gonna have some barbecue with the Ewoks, and I think it's gonna be a great time. Like that for me is like the best ending ever. Like you're gonna have barbecue with teddy you know, bears. <laughs> it's gonna be great. My, my I guess my answer to the question is I'm gonna play like my usual like chain card or blade runner where it's like <laughs> maybe it is maybe it's like you're not supposed to know like that's that's the thing that's the thing is like you actually don't know if it's redemption or not redemption i guess you do know that the force ghost but like to me it's almost like a good thing like or, or not like an, another movie would just be like luke being like being some sort of religious element being like no he is redeemed he is one with the force now and he's at peace and then like you know hannah layer being like dude he mil he murdered millions like no that's not acceptable i don't and like and like they almost yeah. don't like there's like the idea that like there's these two, like, there can be these two um, <laughs> thoughts on it, both from the fans and from even, like, within the universe of, like, like, hey, the Force says, like, the Force is, like, thousandism. He he confessed on a deathbed. Sorry. <laughs> you know, he's a horrible person. Right. He's going to have because he did this that. deathbed convention, you know, and that's just the way the religion works. And then, like, the other people being like, well, then maybe this religion's kind of a little fucked up because, you know, in a, in a not, like, Force Jedi perspective, like, no, he is not redeemed. That doesn't, that's not enough. Sorry. It's kind of like the good place system of whether you're a good person or a bad person. It's like the same conception Lucas has about you got your dark side points and your light side points, right? And it's like, if you can do one thing that just kind of puts you over the edge on the light side, then then uh, you're going to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> RPG rules. Something that's kind of interesting, Howard Kassangin, the who just came out with his biography, by the way, in the last year that was co-authored by J.W. Rinsler. 
who uh, who who sadly passed away in the last year. Um, Howard Kassanjan brought up with George Lucas this issue. He was like, I don't get this whole redemption thing. Like Vader's basically space Hitler and you're basically saying, OK, now all is forgiven. Like, how does that work? And Howard Kassanjan was a very he took his Christian faith very seriously. And George Lucas said in response, well, but your religion is all about forgiveness. And Howard Kassanjan was like, and in that moment, he made me realize, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, that is that is what forgiveness is. And Russ, you're right, because especially when this movie was made, it is only through the eyes of Luke. Obviously, you're not thinking about the prequels because the prequels didn't exist. I just think the problems come in when George Lucas's personal view of what's going on here comes in. I don't think that works. In his mind, this is a redemption for the character that he depicted in the prequel trilogy. And I don't know that that I buy that. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't I don't think like I don't think the prequels necessarily have a nice, clean, straight slide into uh, the original trilogy. I never did. Uh, that's fine. They don't have to. I don't watch them, and so it's okay. I watch Return of the Jedi, though. It's, it's the the best Star Wars movie and still my favorite. <laughs> I'll tell you what I do watch. <laughs> I definitely feel like, you know, I've, I've reached a point where it's like, canon's what I make it, you know? And I, I think I'm with you where it's like, you know, yeah, I got these canon. three movies. All head canon. And I can pretend I don't, yeah, that the prequels, I don't, you know, it's 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 weird. Like yeah. when even before Cheers. the prequels, there was you know, like there was like expanded universe stuff, and there was the stuff after Return of the Jedi, and then they started doing old Republic stuff or whatever. And I had just no interest. I never had anything in interest in terms of what happened. Literally a minute Oi. before Episode Four, <laughs> like I don't know why it just was nothing that interested me. It, like. See, the, and the Halloween movie series officially made this okay because there's like four different timelines there, and like you, so you literally have to pick which ones you want to have your head canopy. Right. So that like opens the doors. You can do that for anything now. <laughs> totally. Yeah. If you want to hear the the translated lyrics of uh, Lofty Neck, yes, yep. please. <laughs> yes. Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to say them. My body heat is rising. My soul is sympathizing. A loving man is coming. So I'm shaping up and working out. I feel my heart a pumping. My whole brain is thumping. A fancy man is coming. Because, by the way, Lamptonac is fancy man. That's what that means. A fancy, yes, a fancy man is coming. I'm shaping up and working out. Well, sing, people sing. You got to work your mind. You got to be okay. You got to walk the street. You got to move your bod. You got to work your feet. We're shaping up and working out. We're shaping up and working out. Oh. I want to see that movie where, where that's the theme song to the movie. Like, I want to see that in Star Wars Universe movie. I want to see that Phil Collins <laughs> musical style with those lyrics. And then it's Miami Vice style montage of like a Jedi, like yeah. preparing for the final. They're just leaving money on the table. They sing that song before <laughs> Luke showed up, right? Like, I almost wonder, yes, he's like a I fancy man. So. Is this some sort of thing where they're like, oh, yeah, it's like a fancy man's coming. Yeah. He's coming for you. That's Luke. They're singing about Luke. Well, that's my headcanon. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, like, I mean, at the end of the day, I love this movie. I know that there are a lot of things I critiqued about it, but at the end of the day, like I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. I will, I will always love this movie. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with all of you. Um, any final closing thoughts about Return of the Jedi? I agree. I actually like this is a great movie. I, I watched it and I'm like, yeah, I love. It. I don't care. Like Ewoks are cool. I don't care. They're cute. To, to me, it's like Empire is my favorite movie, and there's nothing bad I can say about it. It's just like a well-made movie. This is a movie that like. 
is so close to my heart and like I can pick apart forever, but it's just never, no matter how, how hard I pick it apart myself, is it going to actually ever make me not enjoy it though? Because it's just like, it's just like the pinnacle of like this 80s blockbuster cinema. Like I, th- I think the only thing that can top it in that sense is probably Raiders, you know? Yeah. We pick because we love. Yeah, my, like my, I think I love more than anything, just like in perfect movies. Like my favorite genre of movies, horror movies, and that's like filled with like almost by definition like imperfect movies i like things that are just messy and like imperfectly great so i think that's a big reason why i like this maybe my number one depending on how i feel on the day very well said uh i just want to point out that um the, the um the shield uh generator uh base door is also a fairly large door um so back on my theme of jedi contains many large doors whether it be a, a docking bay or um, so just, you know, even the Rancor has the um, the gate cage door. So uh, big doors is a theme uh, throughout Return of the Jedi um, that I really didn't get into talk about in depth, but it's something, um, feel free to, to DM me or something uh, afterwards. Uh, I can go in great detail about uh, the many doors of Star Wars and particularly in Return of the Jedi. Well, you should DM the Emperor and tell him to put a fucking door on the open chamber to the reactor <laughs> core that he has in his throne room. What the fuck is wrong with this man? Well, that, that's, policy, like a... that's policy. No uh, limited railing and uh, and no no gates or, or grates. <laughs> <laughs> Got to work fast. I think we should just do just the podcast and just the doors of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> From do- doors to doors. I definitely want to do a whole trash compactor about all the doors in Star Wars. I'm serious. <laughs> Star doors. Star Doors. <laughs> so an adorable idea. I, I think there's something there. I, I, I debated mean, saying it, that, but I, I did. Uh. Well, I really want to thank all three of you. This was a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. And um, nothing I like more, I always say, than uh, talking about Star Wars with my friends. It's uh, my favorite thing to do. And this is a great movie to do it with. I want to thank my guests, Russ, Mickey, and Fry. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please rate us five stars on whatever podcast platform you choose and follow us trashcompod.com or trashcompod across all social media. Thanks everybody for joining us and we'll see you on the next one.